Hello, hey, is it, hi, hi, hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Too Much Information with Sean Arnold. I am still Sean Arnold as of this week, um, even though I haven't left the house in, um, I don't know, three and a half years, um, whatever it's been with this crazy thing we got going on. My guest today is a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. He is an incredibly interesting man. He is very funny. Um he is the president um, and founder of Striking Marketing. We'll talk about that. It's a company here in Atlanta. Um, he is the owner and original cast member at the Village Theater, which is an amazing improv joint where we've done some, I've been a bunch of times, done some cool stuff with my wife. Um, he's had other uh, random super fun things in his past, like being the um, on-court guy for the Atlanta Hawks. We'll talk some about that. Um, but my guest today is my friend, Mike King. What's hey, happening, man? How you doing, dude? <laughs> Good, man. I'm really, really good. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, when my friends hear that intro, they're going to be like, who the hell is he talking about? You're not funny. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny how that works, though? Like, I, and, and it's I've had this conversation with my friends often, right, around the idea that uh, being funny intentionally is very different than being funny sometimes accidentally. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it, it completely does. And then there are other people that you're like, oh my God, you're hilarious. You should be on stage and you should be doing stuff. They're like, I'm not funny. I'm like, like my brother, <laughs> my brother is way funnier than I am. And he's way more creative. He just doesn't, he's like, nah, he doesn't think of himself that way. So he just puts himself in a box of, nah, I can't do that. It's like, Dude, you actually could do this better than I can. Trust <laughs> me on this one. Um, but yeah, it's look. I guess it's perception's reality. We have our own perception of ourselves and what you think. Like, I I don't think I'm that funny. I think I'm entertaining. Like, I have a buddy of mine. Um, his name's Dan Cronin. We were in the same fraternity pledge class. Uh, we were in the same fraternity for years. Um, and one day I remember he had to stand up in front of the, the chapter, 65 guys. Um, and they're like, make his laugh, Cronin. Oh. He did impersonations of fraternity brothers. And I remember looking at my roommate. I'm like, I get it. They're like, what? I'm like, I'm kind of entertaining. I'll do outrageous stuff to make people laugh. And I don't care. He's funny. Well, <laughs> I own an improv theater company. He writes for Conan. So oh, the there you go. There you go. Um, yeah. And it feels like too, it's a little bit of a, like in that scenario, like I feel like you're, you're at a massive disadvantage also because it's like, Hey, be funny. Oh, you know I what I mean? That. Like, that's like, okay. And, and I mean, the only thing I can tell you in parlance that isn't necessarily about, I guess worried about being good. Cause to a degree it's a muscle, but whenever I'm at, this happens a lot whenever I'm at like a party, especially in the neighborhood and like there's a guitar laying around and somebody huh. jams at my face and goes play a song. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, I know I can play the song. I don't think it would be awful, but now there's just this really weird vibe 
You know what I mean? It's one yeah. thing if it happens spontaneously, right? It's in a, that would just, or somebody just like you're at a party, like if you came to my house and a bunch of people, and I was like, oh, oh, Mike's a comedy guy. Mike, tell a joke, and the whole place just gets quiet. Like yeah, that's and a, they all look at you, and you're like, <laughs> I'll tell you, you know what? Uh, a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine started something, and we, a bunch of us, took it on. Uh, you know, we bump into people and like, oh, these guys are from the Village Theater. Say something funny. Make us laugh. Oh, jeez. Without missing a beat, somebody would say. Okay, pay me 10 bucks because I get paid to be funny. I'm just hanging out now. And they're like, ah, see, that's hilarious. I'm like, I'm fucking serious. You want me to make you laugh? <laughs> no, I'm so glad that's universal because that's the other thing is like, and I don't do this anymore. And believe me, I'm not necessarily that much of a sourpuss. Like if I'm at a party and the atmosphere is right, I, I, I have no problem playing a tune, right? Right. But the other thing is like this has happened to every musician on the planet earth and it still does i mean it happens now is like this one's like hey i'm having a labor day party um why don't you come over and play and i'll give Bring you a, your guitar yeah and i'll give you a, like a 12 pack of beer and i always in my mind i do this every time is i know what that person does for a living and it, the last time it happened to me, it just happened. This guy was an accountant. And I was like, hey, that's awesome, dude. Why don't you come over to my house and do my taxes? I got a case of beer for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, like, because people just don't think, I don't right. know. I don't know what it is about art or entertainment that people feel like that. That's actually, like, this is a much more, this is now a deep conversation into the arts and the value of art. But this has always been my problem with like music sharing. You remember when the whole Napster thing was going on and people or like people that watch movies on YouTube or whatever, like right. that's someone's product, right? Like right. if your friend owned a clothing store, do you think you should just be able to walk in and take a shirt off the rack and just leave with it? <laughs> right like he made that just like the person that made a comedy record or a a music so, wrote a song yeah. or did whatever like that's their thing right they made that right and just because it doesn't exist physically does not give you the right to just steal it well it, it's funny you know yeah on that same thing it's just like hey i was thinking about coming down and see a show great cool can you leave me a ticket <laughs> oh exactly uh, people oh, oh. and i don't mind don't get me wrong look the theater's there we we don't make a ton of money uh giving out a ticket or two here and there to friends they'll buy beers at the bar and i don't mind it but there are the people that you know like there are other people that call up and be like hey i'm thinking about bringing a group down um do you think you can get me a discount if i get like 20 people or and those people you want to go look man I, yeah i'll get you how about buy one get one right because it's just like I appreciate you just thinking that, Hey, I'm going to help. And I want to bring you guys money. And this is like, that's, I want to help those people. The other people I'm like, Oh, I feel I'm such, cause if I say no, I'm a dick. All of a sudden I become a dick and you're asking for something for free that I still have to pay rent on. Yeah. But you're not but, though. You got to fight that feeling. Cause I've just now resigned myself to the fact that if they think I'm a dick, that's a them problem, not a me problem. And yeah. I, and, <laughs> yeah. And just be like, hey, man, um, I got, I, you know, I got to keep the lights on. We did that. I mean, I'm not want, don't want to break my arm, pat myself on the back, but we had my wife's birthday at your theater. Yeah. And I and was like, guys, I was like, hey, how much? Tell me how I need to buy. We want the theater for a night. And it's going to be a hundred people. 
Tell me how much that costs. And you gave me and an it, extremely reasonable number. And I'm like, perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, that's, those are the things we're like, we can do that. And there, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people like there are charities that come up. Hey, can you guys come out? And you're like, yeah, we'll do it at a discount or we'll do that for free kind of thing. Um, one of the things, and it's just my brain went here, uh, you know, for charities, we don't care about giving the house away. Uh, I mean, my business partner, Blair and I, he's a VP at a bank. Um, I, I have striking and the theater is a break even if we're on our best behavior kind of thing. And now we're just like, after 10 years of it being open, I'm like, okay, we give people an opportunity to perform. We do break even. Let's use the place to do fun stuff. So like we were going to do on April 22nd, uh, was that April 22nd? Yeah. No, 20. Yeah. The, the ele- Sometime this month, we were going to do a Parkinson's Foundation thing. Because a couple of the original cast members, uh, their parents have, my mom has Parkinson's and my uh, close friend, best friend, Justin's mom, my dad did. Um, so we were going to do that. And I know those kind of conversations. I go to my business partner. He's like, cool, let's do it. Yeah. No questions asked. We're, other things, it's like, hey, so-and-so, or the other, my other favorite. Sorry, I'm all over the place. No, all, I love favorite, all over the place. This is my favorite. <laughs> uh, my other friends call him like, hey, um. Can I use the theater? Uh, we want to perform a show. Oh, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, we're gonna charge ten bucks. Do we get? Oh, and it was worse at the beginning. He's like, "Really? Yeah. Hey, man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, this is not just a bar. Like, you're not boring my lawnmower for an hour. Right. Right. Like, did, also, did you buy your guitar? Did you buy your microphone? Like what everything else you're using, did you pay for? Or did everybody just give you that too? Um, yeah. I, so it is It is an interesting thing when you're in that, that venue. Um, there are people that get it. And then there are people that completely just devalue it. And they're like, well, you're entertainment. Yeah. Um, I, I also you pay for entertainment. I also think most people aren't in a position, and I think I'm overly sensitive to it because I spent the earlier part of my career, well, two things in the <laughs> bar business, right in Buckhead, and right, the, and then um in the in, in the music business, right, and then so that already sort of was uh, was a bit atypical, right? Like the the things that you and I. And I would consider that sort of like the hospitality industry, right? Which is sort of yep. or that, you know, the entertainment slash hospitality world, which is kind of our world. Um, or at least it was my world before. Then I married someone who's on television. And so I'm so sensitive. And I, cause I think most people don't experience this, but it's actually very, very funny um, to watch people try to take advantage of my wife right like and how obvious it is and what i mean is is the person that you haven't seen or heard from in ages right the voicemail text message instagram facebook message whatever shows up and it's very innocuous at the it's like hey how's it going right da 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 it it, it, it matriculates into a phone call and then here comes the ask. Can yeah. you get me X? Right. And I'm like, you haven't talked to her in months, right? Or years. And now your first thing is like, I need something or I want some free shit. You know what I mean? Like that just, 
And I think because of that, like I'm the opposite. Like I never ask anybody for any, right. Like I, I just am very sensitive to it, you know, like gr- perfect example, again, back to my wife's birthday, never in a million years would I have called you and said, I want to do something cool for Holly's birthday. Can we have the theater one night? Right. <laughs> like one Saturday night, right? Like the night, well, probably a night where it's one of your higher revenue nights as well. So not only are you not making any money, but it's going to cost you some money. Right. Like, like I'm asking you cool, to, right? Yeah. I'm asking you to invest in my wife's birthday, basically. Right. Um, yeah. But I just, but I see it happen constantly and I'm sure in your world, it's the same way because you, but you know, it's usually, you know, it's things like tickets or, and it happens to my wife too, like work product, you know, they'll call and ask her to do like voiceover for them or something. And I'm just like, yeah, sure. It's $400 an hour. Yeah. And people are, (laughs) it's people, I think, look, and, and I could be completely wrong, but there is kind of, we all go through it, but they look at certain things and like, well, you didn't go to school for that. It's kind of your God-given gift. Shouldn't you be giving it to everybody? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> um, technically, it's your God-given gift that you know how to deal with numbers. You went to school. We, re, you know, you fine-tune that. Well, I have been doing improv for twenty years. Right. I have taken my lumps and done zero. So my schooling was live. Your schooling was in school. We're kind of even, you know, to be good at that, that whole adage, 10,000 hours. It's like, yeah, we should respect everybody. But because it's a kind of an entertainment or a natural ability, people on a local level and when they're friends with people go, oh, yeah, you can do that for me, right? What, what, what makes you think that? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. And then, again, I'm Irish Catholic. There, <laughs> it's been years where it's just like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. And then I get off the phone. I'm like, why did I say yes to that? Why did I say yes? Yeah. The first, I'll give you, I'll give you a really bad example. I hate, hate, hate emptying charity events. Now (laughs) I have gotten burned so many times. Sure. And, uh, this is, this is a horrible one. You're going to laugh. So I did one for my business partner and I'm like, dude, I don't do it anymore. I've had, he's like, come on, man. It's from Maggie's school. I'm like, fine. So I roll down and what normally happens in those things when you're doing the live, when you're doing your announcements, nobody really wants to hear from that guy. Everybody's talking. And then you're doing live charity events and unless in certain settings and it's part of like the, the overall program and there's a massive stage. Okay. We have a big screen and everybody focuses on it. But when it's a guy and a mic on the other side of the room, nobody really pays attention. And this one time, the woman who was running it was like, look, you need to get these people engaged. And I was like, okay. So like, I don't care what you have to do. I'm like, all right. And I tried and we went to our next break and she was like, you didn't get them engaged. I'm like, okay. And I looked at my business partner from the theater. I'm like, do me one favor, Bleezy, Blair. Remember she said that because I'm going to get their attention She's going to be real upset. So I go for my third hit. I go to the middle of the room. I'm wearing one of my favorite pairs of boots. And I stand up on this round, eight-foot round table. And I just start banging the heel of my boot on the table. And everybody (laughs) in the place stopped and looked. There was one major problem I didn't think about. That every time I hit the fucking table, oh, no. the wine that the yeah. women were drinking just went volcano all over them. So there are 
three women at this table, <laughs> two with red wine on them and one with white. And I'm like, oh, I got to get the hell out of here. Oh, I'm like, okay, God. I got everybody's attention. I want everybody to donate. I got to go buy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I, I just looked at them. I'm like, not going to happen again. I'm never doing anything for free. Yeah. I'm just not. The other thing that's, and I'm going to use this organization as an example, but I want to preface this by saying, they are not the example because they do it right. Okay. But I don't mm-hmm. want to say the names of some of the organizations. I should just call them out, but it doesn't make sense too. But so the human rights campaign has brought my wife in to MC like one of their, their big gala a few times, right? Like where they give their person of the year, you know, right now again, the human rights campaign paid my wife, right. For her time to come and do a job, which is MC the event. Yep. Okay. So, however, let's pretend for a second that they didn't. The human rights campaign is what a $50 million company, right? Like I yep. get it. It's a nonprofit, right? I'm, I appreciate and support the work they do. And the reality is, is if someone actually made a case for donating my wife's time for something like that, like something that is important to us, like if it was animal rescue, if somebody asked, like, it's like, okay, that's a thing that means something to us. So she would certainly, she does stuff for free a lot, right? If she feels like it's approached the right way, or if it's something we care about, she looks at it as like giving a donation. Cause it's like, we couldn't donate to all the charities we're associated with because we know lots of people in that world. Um, but that's a way for her to go, okay, I can give back. But the funny thing is, is when you have an organization like the HRC, right, where they call and ask you to do something and then they ask you to do it for free and then you get there and it's like at the Ritz, it's a plated dinner. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like the caterers getting paid, the venues for sure getting paid. Yeah. Um, the, you know, everybody on the board's getting paid and they make money. Let's, you know, everybody who runs the organization, you're like, oh. and, and it's like, you're telling me you can't get my wife $1,500. You know what I mean? For the yeah. night, for the night, for her to come and right, like she's, that's where you gotta, that's, that's where you're a nonprofit and you got to watch it. Even though it probably costs what a hundred bucks a plate for the 500 people that are in here. Right. With 50 and G's gonna, on the, on the, on food. And she's going to keep them entertained the entire night and keep it moving and be smiling and get money. Yeah, I get it. And, and right, I'll give you one more. Wait, hang on. I'll give you one more. This is on a personal level, bringing it back to a personal level. And this is true. When I was <clears throat> right a couple of years out of college, I mean, two, three years out of college, and it's long enough that I remember we still had CDs, right? Yeah. So you traveled with like a pack of 50 CDs and it was like easy, right? Um, I went to a buddy's wedding, a college buddy's wedding. Um, very limited amount of people. I mean, there probably were 60, 70 people invited. Um, and only two are, I think, two other guys from my, uh, from my school uh, that we went to school with. And nice wedding on the beach. And the reception was a three-hour tour, which is hilarious. <laughs> a three-hour tour on the Chesapeake. In Maryland. Was the place, was it called the USS Minnow? Sorry, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> uh, had to do it. Cool. Sorry, had to do it. Um, so as we're getting on the, the boat, it means it's like, hey, man, um, did you bring your CDs? He's, I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, do you mind bringing them on the boat? I'm like, no, I'll play them. I don't care. He's like, cool. So I go back out to my rental car, get the CDs, come back on the boat. He's just like, cool, cool, cool. Thanks, man. 
do you mind just playing a couple of those? Uh, hey, sure. Yeah. Next thing you know, I have a mic in my hand. He's like, do you mind making announcements? I'm like, wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> and the rest, for the three hours, I'm the host of the reception and pseudo DJ. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And at that point, what do you say to somebody? It's their wedding. You're not saying no. Yeah. yeah you're in a bad spot right there for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, you're in a really bad spot. Yeah, man, people, but I don't know. I think maybe old me now is a little more, I mean, I do try to do it with some level of diplomacy, but I have definitely gotten over the fact of feeling bad about saying, Hey, look, (laughs) like we need to figure this out. If we're going to do this, like we need to do it more formally. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that's usually how I frame it, you know? And I think they get the point when you say that. Now, unlike your wife, who I feel is immensely talented and a national person because uh, she's known, right? I feel blessed on the other foot <laughs> of that is when I get little gigs. Like for 10 years, I was the uh, host of um, the big dance or, you know, whatever the music fest that's the final four for Coca-Cola. And I remember being on stage in front of 40 or 50,000 people and being like, <laughs> they're paying me to do this. This is insane. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's actually paying me. Um, My favorite gig on that was that um, every year, and this will be the first year I don't do it, uh, for obvious reasons, um, for multiple reasons, actually. But um, Red Bull's charity of choice is a thing called Wings for Life World Run. Um, And I got to tell you the long end of this story, right? So uh, Wings for Life World Run is a international event where every, they try and get people to run and participate in a race simultaneously across the globe. Uh, the goal is 100% of all proceeds go to spinal cord research. Um, and it was started because the owner of Red Bull's friend, uh, he invited him to an event. Because he invited the friend to the event who was a Formula One driver, his son went to another event in replace of him. His son got into an accident and had a spinal cord injury. And they're like, okay, what's the next steps? And they're just like, there are none. The way this works is that only like 250,000 people have a spinal cord injury a year. So researchers really don't spend money on it. Um, so they started the charity. Every year, so that's on one note, right? When the charity started and this uh, international event was happening, I was doing an event for Red Bull. And at the end of this kind of team meeting, production-wise. Someone's like, you should ask Mike. And I jokingly answered, yeah, ask Mike. The guy <laughs> walked up, he's like, would you be interested in helping us with on the Wings for Life event? I'm like, absolutely, sure, yeah. What is it? <laughs> and that was kind of my response. And he explains it. I'm like, that sounds really cool, man, yeah. Well, I was under the impression that they were putting my name up with Red Bull nationally, to host and MC the event that happens in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and I was like, cool, I- I'd love to do that. About a month goes by, and this guy Paul calls me up. He's like, look, you're still on the short list. We should know in a couple of weeks. I'm like, all right, cool, just let me know. I'm like, May, right? Like, yeah, May 5th is the first uh, is the event. I'm like, all right, yeah, no problem. Two weeks go by, I get a phone call. Okay, it is down to you uh, and two other guys, uh, and they're looking at a guy from Canada. I was like, okay, hey, Paul, why are they looking from a guy from Canada? Well, they want um, three commentators to be English-speaking, at least, on the radio broadcast. 
I'm sorry, what are we talking about now? <laughs> He's like, didn't we go into these details? I'm like, no. He's like, oh, yeah, we would need you to fly to Austria on April 29th. <laughs> um, and then you're going to commentate internationally. And you're going to be one of the three international English voices. And we're hoping to get somebody from America, from England, and from Canada. And you guys will broadcast the radio thing. I'm like, uh, okay, cool. <laughs> Is that a problem? Not at all. <laughs> I hung up the phone and I turned to my wife. I'm like, I am now officially in over my head. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like, oh, God. And then the next thing you know, I get the gig. And I'm being paired up with a BBC reporter, uh, some guy in Canada bails. So we get some producer who's the producer of the BBC guy and myself. I get flown over the entire production team for the radio aspect of Wings for Life World Run is an Austrian team. Only one or two guys speak fluent English. Everybody else speaks Austrian. And I've never done anything like this in my life. And the next thing you know, we are in a boot camp for a week on how to color commentate anything on radio. Uh, and I mean, we one, I got yelled at by this guy, Mario, who I'm now very good friends with. But he was screaming at typical American trying to take control. And that night we were out drinking. So, and I'll tell you the get of it, right? Um, commentate a six and a half hour race. And the way this race is unique and different and how everybody in the world can run at the exact same time is that there is no finish line. Everybody in the world starts running at the exact same time, no matter where you are. So in Sunrise, Florida, it was 7 a.m. In Taiwan, it was 7 p.m. In Austria, uh, Australia, it was 8 p.m. In Austria, it was, um, I think, 11 in, uh, or 12. Everybody takes off running. Then a half an hour later, what they call a catcher car is released. It goes uh, at the beginning 9.6 miles an hour for the first half hour or hour. And then every half hour after, they just changed the rules last year, it speeds up by X kilometers. And when the catcher car catches you, you're tossed out of the race. Well, if you can imagine, they'll have 150,000 people running all over the globe. The first year we had all these satellites and we'd have giant, uh, we had all these screens and we were just bringing this to life. The next year they created the app and our numbers went through the roof. Why? Because everybody in the, on the app across the world was listening to the radio feed. Um, but we ended up color commentating this. And I just remember sitting there at the end of six hours, a week in Austria in boot camp of how to do this and looking at my producer and I'm like, how do we do? He's like, you just, color commentated a foot race that internationally happened and it was entertaining. I would say that's a huge win. And I remember sitting there going, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> yeah. But this is so, so it's like, I'll take those moments where I'm in front of a charity event because I, I have been blessed to have this experience where it's like, you know, I'll tell you the other, uh, it's stupid, right? But I'm a kid from Queens. My parents are immigrants. And at one of the final fours, I'm backstage and my celebrity host, at that time, that year was uh, Ken Jong, uh, Mr. Chow from yeah, the uh, Hangovers. Yeah, and one he really didn't want to interact with many people. Next thing you know, I'm in a meeting with him, and he's kind of just talking to his manager. He's like, "I just don't know what I'm going to do." Well, I knew a guy he was on a show with. The guy taught me, uh, and you probably know Lance. 
Yeah, of uh, course. Lance, Lance Crawl. Yeah. Yeah. Lance was on a show with him, Wanda Sykes, back in the day, the uh, Steve Martin show. So I looked at Ken. I was like, listen, man, um, we actually have a friend in common. He's like, who? I'm like, you've worked with Lance. He's like, Crawl? I'm like, yeah. Lance, uh, I performed at his the company he founded, and he taught me improv. You would have thought everybody else in the room disappeared, and it just became this one-on-one conversation with Ken. And he's just like, Mike, I just don't see this comedy working. I'm like, what do you see working? And we're having this great conversation. So now we're at the day of the show, and I'm hanging out with them all day. Why? Because we're getting along and we're co-hosts together. Um, all of a sudden, you hear just rumblings backstage. Where is he? Where is he? I got to meet Mr. Chow. Jimmy Buffett and his entourage dying <laughs> to meet Mr. Chow. And now I'm in a private group of me, Jimmy Buffett, and Ken. And I'm just like, I shouldn't be here. There's, I'm the least talented guy here. What the hell's going on? But it's like those moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm very, very lucky. And I, uh, I will take those little lumps of, okay, yeah, I'll do this as long as this keeps happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. And those, and those obviously are way different. You know what I mean? That's a whole lot different than like the local, you know, like whatever, you know what I mean? Want you to, Mm -hmm. you know, do something, but and also in that scenario, if you know, got like Ken Jong, obviously for people that don't know is actually a doctor, like a medical yeah. doctor, right? Not a, not a dumb guy, right? Like, so nope. it's not just like the, you know, vapid, you know, egomaniac, you know, entertainment guy. Like I think went to Duke med school, like, you know, not, oh, it, not dumb. And he was a practicing doctor. I think he still kind of has a practice in, like he sees patients, I believe I heard at one point in LA. Um, but then it, it goes, now that we're talking, it goes back to exactly what you're saying. Like we were in that room and, you know, from a certain perspective, you can look at him and go, oh, what an ass. He's not talking to anybody else in the room. Well, if you look at the flip of that, he's looking at the room and going, all these people want is something out of me. And yes, I've committed to doing something for them, but they just want more out of me. And he's kind of been taken back. And the minute I kind of found common ground between them, I'm like, I know Lance, I'm not going to take advantage of you. What do you want to do? It just made it a lot easier. And it's almost, you see it at all levels, right? Because I'd be the low man on that totem pole. Holly would be the midsection of that totem pole. And then the, the major celebrities doing stuff are at the high, they're all getting bugged for stuff. Um, and people get caught in their own little world of, well, why won't you do it for me? It's like, me is a lot of people when the higher you move up the totem pole, you know, uh, there's a lot of me's out there the, and you try and make everybody happy. Yeah. And there's also this thing that I think people do that. I mean, again, I think probably because of where I've come from and what I've done in my career, I don't really like celebrity just as a concept to me is a bizarre con like, like I don't think it affects me. Like it affects a lot of people. Now don't get me wrong. There are, there are people that I think people would consider celebrities that maybe I would get weirded out if I met. The thing is, is it wouldn't be for me because they were famous. It would be because either I really appreciate their art or they've done something that's affected me in some way. You know what I mean? Like who? Um, like, well, I can tell you guys that like people I've met where I've gotten freaked out. Um, I met Prince once and I didn't know what to do. 
you, you know what I mean? Just because yeah. he is a now that's probably a bad example because that's like Brad Pitt. Like that's another that's even in a different stratosphere of other celebrities, right? Like he's a I think he's probably one of the greatest modern musicians that's ever lived. So Sean, like literally my 87 year old father, ADD moment, my 87 year old father, uh, we got him a new phone finally. He's on my brother's account, Andrew, right? Next thing you know, somehow all my brother's iPhone music is bleeding onto my father's phone. And one time he's, I get in his car and he's playing sexy motherfucker. Yes. The guy's 87. He's mm-hmm. straight off of Ireland. And I'm like, what in the... He's like, I have no idea how this music got in my phone. No idea. <laughs> and then without missing a beat, he's like, but I will say, you lost a great talent there. Didn't realize how good this kid was when he was alive. Jesus, is this Prince kid good? I don't understand some of his songs. And I'm just like... Is this fucking happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, and in the, and again, in that scenario, though, I wasn't infatuated about the fact that he was famous. I was thinking about all of the ways that something that guy created affected my life, right? Like, it, you know, and that's that's a different thing, right? Like, that's a different thing than just being like, ooh, and people just have, and I think what it is is most people equate fame to wealth, and I think that's why, because yeah. here's the other thing I think people understand, and and again, I've told people that this is the way that I define fame. And I don't know if this is a real definition or if this means anything, but this is me to me, fame in its you know basic form is effectively people know you, but you don't know them. Right. So then it becomes degrees of fame, right? Like everybody's a little famous, right? Like they're ev- almost everyone in the world. There's somebody that knows you and you have no idea who they are. Right. Right. But it goes up the ladder to where your prince, where the entire planet, or Michael Jordan, right? Like, or Tiger Woods, right? Everyone knows you, and you don't know any of them, right? Like, you know, 0.00001% of the people that know you, right? That's fame to the extreme, right? So, but... So again, like you talked about like levels, like you're famous, you know, in your ecosystem, my wife to a degree is famous in her ecosystem, right? There's people that know her and she's has no idea, right? Whether they've heard on the radio or seen her on CNN or whatever, and you just push up the chain. So I've got notes. There are people that listen to this podcast. I have no idea who they are. Don't know how they found it. Don't know how that ended up, but every now and then, you know what I mean? I'll get something from them like on an episode or something like that. Um, but there's. People just, I don't know why, again, I think that they equate it to success, right? And wealth. And that's why they think fame, but fame kind of sucks. It totally does. I I had a buddy of mine, RT, one time asked me, you want to be rich or famous? I'm like, famous because we'll be rich. He goes like, you don't have to be rich because you're famous. (laughs) And I got to tell you, um, at the beginning of my days with the Hawks, again, small ecosystem, right? Um, Get to an off season. And I'd be going out for coffee, and uh, I stopped wearing my Hawks gear out. I just stopped wearing anything to do with Hawks. And people, my old boss was just like, what, are you not proud of us? I'm like, there's nothing to do with it. I'm sick of getting yelled at by our, about our draft picks or what we did with our coach or what our GM did. I'm like, they, they just yell at me. Like, I have anything <laughs> to do with it. And, and it'd be people I had never met before. Like, you're the Hawks dude, right? What the fuck's up with that trade, dude? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, uh, I'm not in the front office, homie. <laughs> I make people laugh in 90 second bits. That's really all I do. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always wanted to tell people, I'm like, 
the funny thing is I'm so busy during a game. It's like, it's like literally for me, I'm a huge basketball fan. And it was almost like uh, that scenario of being in hell. I'm working and doing one of my favorite things I thought I'd ever do. I never got to watch half the game. I'd watch like the fourth quarter when all my bits were done. And people were like, you're so lucky. For what? Standing 10 feet away from a basketball game I can't watch? Yeah, exactly right. Um, um, hey, I got to say this one thing. You, uh, because you brought up Prince. Yeah. My favorite band in the world is U2. Like, I am a U2 junkie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good one. And it is just this ironic thing that they're from Ireland. It probably helped because my parents are from Ireland. It's even more crazy that now Bono lives in the hometown right next to my all my family. Um, it's even more ironic that my cousin, uh, John, is best friends with the nanny that took care of Bono's kids. It just so happens that Bono's, uh, the Edge's daughter, goes to school with my cousin's daughter. Like, they all interact. And there's a bar in Dawkins called Finnegan's where everybody knows the guys from U2. But they are not treated like the guys from U2. They're treated like the neighbors they are. And that's why they like going back there. Well, I went back multiple times and I go back, now I go back almost every year. And um, one year we went, me and my brothers and my cousins had played the game with me many times. Oh, we're hanging out with Bono tonight. You should hang out. And you change your plans. They're like, oh, he bailed. Yeah. All right, whatever. <laughs> right. So I played this game multiple times. And now I'm in my mid-20s, late-20s. It's got to be 20 years ago. Uh, and, hey, uh, we're all going to leave Finnegan's. We're going to buy some carryout. We're going to go back to so-and-so's house. Uh, Bono's going to come out and hang out with us. My brothers are all excited. I'm like, yeah, man, he ain't showing up. Well, we walk, and then all of a sudden this Mercedes coupe pulls up. Three women get out. One of them's the nanny. Bono gets out in an Armani suit, T-shirt, no glasses, and I freak out. I freak. Uh, this guy's had so much influence on my life. I've loved this band. I've seen it multiple times. And my brother and I go into the house, and I'm just like, what the fuck? And my cousin Ronan walks up, and he's like, Okay, rules of the house. He likes hanging out with us because we treat him like a normal person. That's right. Don't, don't, don't do it. <laughs> don't bring up the band unless he brings up the band. And if he brings up the band, knows he's bringing up the band because it's his work. So treat it like you're talking about somebody's work. Don't ask for an autograph. Don't ask for a picture. Just hang out with the guy. Man, I got to tell you, had one of the best evenings of my entire life. But there were moments where I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Like I was, again, 20 years ago, the land of CDs and I'm going through CDs and I just happen to be near the stereo and your musical idol walks up. And he's like, what are you going to play next? <laughs> right. Oh, fuck. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. This feels like a way more important question to me than it is to you. <laughs> right. I don't know, but I cannot make a fucking mistake and it cannot be you too. Um, right. Exa so exactly. And the funny thing is, right, now, I wrapped that up all in a bow. I went to Korea to get out of town, and there's a whole other story in that. And I went and saw you two on the Joshua Tree last year. Awesome. I am on a personal tour with uh, – and I went by myself just to get out. Uh, I went on a personal tour, um, and we're talking, this young lady and I, and the next thing you know, she's like, why are you here? I went and saw you two, blah, blah, blah. And we're passing President Moon's quarters. We make a left 
and she screams out. And I'm thinking we're under attack. She screams at the driver to stop. I'm like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? And then all of a sudden she points out the window and she's like, it's Bono, get out. So we get out of the car. She grabs my phone and the head of his security detail is a small dude. Um, and he st- tries to stop me. My tour guide stops him and distracts him. And I get a line in with Bono. I'm like, hey, saw the show last night. Great show. Uh, we've actually met before. You know my family. He's like, what? I'm like, my cousin John is from Dawkins. Uh, You know my cousin John. He's like, John who? I'm like, you know my cousin John King. And he just stopped. And it was like, we're on the other side of the planet. And he's like, you know John King from Don Leary? I'm like, no, he's my cousin. We've actually hung out. He's like, and this this guy who was trying to be nice and go, hey, I'm in the middle of something, all of a sudden had this moment of being another human being on the planet and having a human connection. And the smile on his genuine face, he's like, get out of here. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, do you mind if we get a picture real quick? He's like, absolutely not. We took two quick pictures. And I was like, man, I'm sorry to bother you. He's like, I'm really happy you stopped me. And I just walked away. And it was like that human interaction where I gave him a connection to something where he no longer felt like he was being just used. But he was very gracious about it because that's the way, you know what I mean? Well, so it, it's that whole. They're just people, right? Like, so yeah. that's, so I was getting a long way around it because we were talking about, you know, about the whole fame thing and how people are, you know, but these are just humans, right? Like they have a, a an interesting gig, you know what I mean? Or they might be really wealthy because there are certainly like business people that are famous that aren't entertainers. You know what I mean? Like, right. and I honestly, because I'm a business guy, like I kind of get more weirded out by like the first time I ever met Arthur blank. Um, I was a little freaked and not because he was famous, but I'm a business person. I've been an entrepreneur in my life. And in my mind, the whole time I'm talking to this guy, I was like, this guy and his buddy started selling two by fours and turned it into a $10 billion company. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I want to crack this dude's head open and learn everything I can learn. You know what I mean? Like how much can I learn in this five minute or 10 minute interaction? Yeah. You know, um, because who, how do you do that? Who does that? You know what I'm saying? Like, and granted there's so, so, but they're just humans. Right. And I think that we tend to, people tend to dehumanize, you know, this is one of my beefs and I don't really want to get into politics. Um, but you know, one of the things that makes me very angry is when people, you see it all the time when people, when a celebrity presents a political opinion that differs from someone and they come back with that, they should just shut up and sing or dance or do comedy or whatever they do for a living. Right. Don't talk about politics. And I'm like, wait a second. Meanwhile, this person who is a plumber, but every other Facebook post of theirs is them pontificating on what their political opinions are. And I'm like, well, why don't you just stick to plumbing? Why, why right. are they any different right. than you? You're, they're just, they're, their platform's bigger and it pisses you off that they have a bigger platform, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> my father and I get into that because my father will stop listening to people or watching their movies. If he doesn't like their political stance or they irritate him on some level, or he, he was much worse when he was younger. He doesn't do it as, anymore, but I'm just like, Hey dad, if for some reason you got famous, let's just say, are you not allowed to tell people how you feel anymore? That's different. 
Why? It's not different. I'm not famous. It's just like, yeah, but you use your platform to influence me and the rest of the family and the people you work with. That's what you're trying to do. They're, they're just saying their beliefs as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I no, I get that. It, it's, it's a, it's a thankless, it's a scary place, you know, because you're up on a podium and they want to be like you and they want to act like you. But the minute you show a crack, they want to attack you. Well, if that makes any sense. Well, it's a, it's a, <laughs> yeah. Cause people in this world, again, this is again, Sean, Sean Arnold has lots of theories on life in the universe. And one of them is that most people in the world don't have the courage or will um, or maybe smarts or whatever to pick themselves, to lift themselves up. And so rather than looking at someone that's, again, I don't mean above them in a way, but they, it's, it's easier to chair someone down to get them to your level than to elevate yourself to be on a common right ground. And that's why I think you see people don't like people have stuff that they don't have and they want to tear them down. And yeah. because it's, it's just, it's to me, it's lazy. It's easy, right? Like it's, it's easy to, to do that. And I think people do it. And that's when you can see it. It's so obvious when you see like someone trying to tear someone down. Right. And it's just like, Oh, well you just want to tear them down because you want to be at their level and you don't want to build your own self up. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that's, yeah. that sucks. Right. Like that's a, that's a, that's a terrible way to, like, I can't imagine going through life like that. Like my, no, my, I, my life has always been, if I want something, I'm going to go get it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like uh, that's it. The only thing I can do is go get it. Th there's no, I, no one's going to give it to me. You know, like I just got to figure out how to go get it. And yeah, you know, but to your point again, just back to the celebrity bit, I mean, it's, they're just humans. Right. And, and to your point, like the Bono thing, like finding that common ground, you know, you're right. It's a moment for them to just go, oh my gosh, this is, there's something real here. Just like if the, just like if you were checking out at Starbucks and someone looked at your um, ID and said, wait a minute, Arnold from, you know, or if they were looking at my, you know, and saw like saw my name and then saw like I had on a Mercer jacket and said, Oh, do you know so-and-so? And I would be, and you do know them. There's a connection there now that didn't exist before. And, and, and right. to your point as humans, that's what I think, whether people admit it or not, that's what they're striving for. They're striving to be connected to other people. That's, that's, that's to me, the fuel that keeps us all going. Right. Okay. So that, 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 that thought right there, I'm, I, I, I want to ask you something then. Ready? So, uh, before this pandemic happened, right? Um, we took for granted the connection between human beings because we had never been denied it. Correct. And, and this is just my own feelings of it. And because we had never been denied it, right? We were always told that this technology is going to help us connect more. You'll be able to talk to people, you blah, 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 blah. Well, I really feel what it has done is it's isolated us more. 100%. And then we get this pandemic and people are like, well, now we are really isolated. How do I connect with people? And we go back to technology and now we're using technology to connect people and we're dying to connect. Like we've had a world where people were complaining, kids don't go out and play anymore. Nobody goes outside. We're begging to go outside because <laughs> we've been forced to go inside. Um, and on that note, I'll give you this. 
did you, there's a meme uh, somebody sent out that I actually put up on Instagram or a, a statement. I don't even know what the hell a meme or a gif. I just know what I, it's a picture. Um, <laughs> if you would have told me 10 years ago that the government would pay us to stay inside, all we could have delivered is food and weed <laughs> in the month of 420, I would have been, I never would have believed it. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a, what just happened. Would have been a joke. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, and here's what I think one of the positives that's going to come out of all this is, um, and this is how I know because I'm having com- my wife and I don't have kids, but you know we've I've, I'm having conversations with people that have children right now, and this is the this generation of young people, teenagers especially, I think, are really in the full brunt of what you're talking about. Like again, with texting. And social media and stuff, right? They can they can they can disengage, even though they feel like they're engaging. But you're not really talking to someone; you're talking to a device. Um, those kids now are starting to get freaked out because they can't go hang out with their friends. And I think that that's going to be one of the big positives that comes away with this because I think before they always had the option to go; they just elected to not go and be in person and you know present with other people. And yeah. then it's the age old thing: like if you want your kid to drink beer, like tell him he can't drink beer, you know, like that'll, that'll guarantee you he'll go out and want to try it. Right. Right. But like they're in this situation now of like, you know, it's like, no, well you can't before you could, you just chose not to. Now you can't go. And all these parents I know are saying all our kid wants to do is go hang out with their friends. And I'm like, that's good. And when this is all over, you need to remind them of what it was like to not be able to go and hang out with people and make them do it more. Because I do feel like we were death spiraling a little down into this uh, disconnected, you know what I mean? Like face buried in your mobile device sort of culture. And I think that's bad, right? Like it's bad. My father would bring it up and he was the first person to really recognize it. Again, 87. So he's seen a ton. He's like, one of the most frustrating things I see is going out to dinner. And there are two people sitting across from each other, obviously out to dinner together on their phones for a majority of it. And it's just like, yeah, I get it. Um, I'll tell you something that was really cool. I went for, I go try and go for bike rides now to, to you know, stay socially distant, but also get out. Yeah. Um, and I socially distanced in uh, the front yard of my friend's house. And over in the distance, there's six or eight kids just playing. And I'm like, never noticed them before. Mm. And then she's like, cause they never came out before. Now they're out almost every day playing nonstop. It's kind of cool. It's like, it reminds me of being a kid. Like, I remember when people went out and played. And now it's like, because we're all cooped up, my, I, uh, my neighbors, I, I've lived in my house for 15 years. And this is all on me. I've had neighbors move out on both sides, whatever. I had a new neighbor, Dan, move in. And one of the first things, I, God love him. Thank God. One of the first things he did was, he's like, look, um, I know a couple guys in, in the neighborhood. I'm like, all right, you've been here six months. How do you know more people than I am? Again, they have kids, so they all connect that way. He's like, look, I'm going to get all the dads together or the guys, and we're going to do a gourmet dinner thing. It'd be a nice way. Well, we did it like two or three times, and just those two or three times helped us connect. So now that when we're in this moment, my neighbors, for the first time, we watch movies on the side of their house because uh, they have a modern house, and they come over. They social distance. They stay in my backyard. My other neighbor stays on his deck, but we all communicate. Man, we've never done that before. And because of this, it's like we're now communicating and connecting again. It's, that's the interesting thing to me. I know 
uh, people are dying and it's really scary and, you know, people are freaked out. But the positive of this is, is that for the first time in my lifetime, I feel like we've all slowed down. We've all taken a collective br- a breath or two and we're communicating together as, uh, as, as friends and neighbors. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's, it's super important. We're doing the same thing. Like we, we did last night, like once a week, we have like a neighbor where we just go and like camp out in their driveway and everybody brings like tailgate chairs you know, and we sit, you know, socially distanced, right? We're all six, 10 feet apart, whatever, yep. but it's just a chance for us to, to interact with other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and not be just in your, in your house with your family and your spouse. Not that there's anything wrong with hanging out with your family, but you know, I mean, it's good. Those, those human connections are, are, uh, really, really important. Oh, all right. So I'm going to ask you this question. Yeah. In this coronavirus time, like I, I call it the Corona uh, vortex, right? Yeah. Because things have changed. Time moves rapidly fast, but goes very slow. Um, alcohol disappears incredibly quick. It does. indeed. Um, do you see yourself like a little bit more? And I don't mean like to, to calm your nerves. It's just like, like I had four or five beers last night. I socially distanced with two friends. And next thing you know, I'm like, it's a, fucking monday and i'm six beers in and i'm not watching monday night football what the hell is going on but it was just do you do you sense that as well or is, am i just living in a vortex no I, I think it's true i mean i will say i'm not a huge drinker anymore um uh, that makes sense so so for me um that's less but my wife has actually made this joke because it is like it, like so the joke that i make now um with is every day's Tuesday. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. It's Tuesday, right? Because you're doing the same thing, right? I know there are people that are still working and I know there are people, but the rules have clearly changed. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, Holly was making a joke the other day. She goes like, <laughs> she goes, I think we're out of vodka. And I was like, how there were like four full bottles in here. Like, you know, that vodka is one of those things. Like if people came over, if we had people, do you want, we've got like a pretty fully stocked bar. Like we've got all your major flavors, you know what I mean? Of liquor, bourbon, tequila, vodka, you know, gin, you name it. And it's just, it's always around. And I'm just like, how can we be out of vodka? And she's like, I don't know. I think maybe I'm just drinking more. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. Um, you know, uh, when we did certain events like, uh, high res, the expo for, um, high res studios and these esports events, uh, for my full-time job, I somehow got suckered by a good friend of mine now and my client, Nabil to give behind the scenes tours, you know, and it was, Hey, let's do it for some political people. Let's do it for uh, uh, make a wish. You know, everybody, right? Everybody in between. Um, One of the things that I took for granted being in production and being at events and being the world I've I've lived in for 20 years is, you know, the signs that are on sets. Today is Tuesday. (laughs) You know, today is Tuesday, April 28th, whatever, right? And we're walking down the hallway and somebody's like, you guys have to remind yourself that it's Tuesday. I'm like, yeah, I'm in here doing the exact same thing. I get in at six in the morning. I don't leave till 11 o'clock at night. I barely see natural light. Um, and we're here and we don't know what day it is. Um, the only thing we know is it's 
production day zero, production day one, production day two, because we have that schedule. And people are like, wow. I'm like, yeah, we're our own, own little ecosystem in bubble. Um, so when you say stuff like that, it's like, yeah, the whole country's gone to that now. It's like, you do the same thing. You're just like, does it really make a difference? I'm going to go for a bike ride today. It's Wednesday. It's one o'clock. We have a meeting. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and people laugh, but like again, in the music world, back when I was, you know, we were gigging, like people think this is funny, and because it's a Spinal Tap moment. If anyone's ever seen the movie Spinal Tap, when <laughs> you know, Hello Cleveland, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm not joking. When we were on tour, because we would go out on tour for like you know weeks at a time, right? When and you're in a different city every day, right? Um. The set list, you know, people have seen like it's a piece of paper where usually with a Sharpie, you write out the songs you're going to play and you tape it down in front of everyone. So everybody knows like the playlist for what you're going to play that night. Mm -hmm. Um, We would write the name of the city and the name of the venue at the top of the set list. Because you just don't know where you are. You know what I mean? Like, because everything's the same. I mean, it's a different venue. You know what I mean? But it's effectively the same thing. Over and um, over again. It's like, I don't know if I'm in Dallas or, or Jackson, Mississippi or, um, Chicago, Illinois. Like I have no idea. Right. I have no idea. I (laughs) I don't know how it was for you. So I've toured multiple times, not music for events. Um, you know, I moved down to Atlanta because I worked. (laughs) All right. I moved down to Atlanta because a buddy of mine from college called me up and said, Hey, I know you want to get into events. I don't have a traditional event, but you will travel with 24 women. You'll be sponsored by a beer company. You'll see 50 games, 10 in major league ballparks, 40 in minor league ballparks. We'll pay you and we'll give you a company vehicle. I was 23 years old. Yeah, he was sounds like, like a win. I need to, yeah, I need to know your answer in the next 24 hours. I called my girlfriend up at the time. I'm like, hey, I'm hitting the road next week. Well, should we discuss it? This is the discussion. <laughs> it was a women's professional baseball team. They only played men. We barnstormed the country. We played in like uh, the Seattle Kingdom. We played in uh, San Francisco in a major league ballpark. We played in Rancho Cucamonga in a minor league ballpark. We played everywhere. Greensboro, North Carolina. By the way, I got stories for days of things because there was a little bit of bait and switch. One, I was a merchandise guy. My company vehicle was a 24-foot straight truck. Which over that summer, I hit a stadium. I got caught on the Grand Central Parkway in New York. I uh, had the tow truck in New York. I hit a hotel in Pittsburgh. I took down a two ton gate in Florida. Um, <laughs> it was a hell of a summer. Sure. Um, but that thing. And I, and I also later on in life uh, traveled um, for promotional stuff for the Black Eyed Peas. And it was that thing of, Okay, where are we? Ah, who cares? You want to go to the mall? Yeah, let's go to the mall. Because you're in some small town, and there's really nothing to do. You only have a window of, if you get up at 9 or, you know, 9 in the morning, you got to be at the ballpark at X time. So there's really nothing for you to do because you're always, your call time's hanging over your head the whole day, right? And you can't do anything. You can't go out, you know? So it's like, okay, let's go to the mall again. Let's go see another movie. And you're doing these things, but we had no clue where we were. Like, there were plenty of times it was like, what ballpark were we in? I don't know. I know game time's at seven. Does anything else matter? 
Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? It's just, um, and the same thing, my favorite though, Black Eyed Peas, um, on, tra- on show days underneath our doors, we would get a call sheet for the day. And here are all the call sheet production moments. You, this group has to be on the bus at this time, this group at this time, this time at this time. And if it was a travel day, uh, you know, the buses leave after at this. Make sure everything's here. My favorite was when we jumped over to Canada and came back because there was always in the middle of the paper in big black bold letters. We are passing over a border this evening. Anything that should not go over a border should be discarded <laughs> an hour before you get to the border. <laughs> and I had never understood why there were apples on tours. And I'm like, why do we have so many apples? They're like, because we can make it a one hitter really quick. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? They're like, yeah. Why do you think catering has it? And the catering guys would call down and be like, listen, you can't eat it. Don't ask for it. Okay. And it was just like this whole different ecosystem of a world where you knew there was an outside world, but you didn't. You, you were in this eco of this family. You hung out with your certain group. And you had all these things that you had to get to and it's systematically put together. And, you know, we're in, I, I don't care what town we're in. I got to be at work at seven and the arena and the arenas all look the same to me, even though they were slightly different, you know, the gig, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. <clears throat> so anyway. Yeah, sorry. no, it, and it, it was, it just became this very disconnected, but again, that also goes back to the same thing we were talking about before about celebrities and stuff. It's like, even in those jobs, like it's hard to feel connected because usually you're in a circumstance where you're not sedentary either. Right. Like right. you're not, you don't have, Oh, I'm just, I go to work. I, you know, I get up at six 30. I'm at work at seven 30 or eight. I come home and I'm home Monday through, you know what I mean? That's not how your life is. And so it gets even more, more disconnected. Oh, I'm going to get tangential now too, just because I thought of this earlier and I forgot to mention when you're talking about meeting um, people that are important to you. I will say this, however, too, though, that along the same lines of celebrities or people too, um, some of them are awesome and some of them are dicks, right? Oh, like, yeah. Like I have, so I met Bono once as well and my experience is like your experience in that like he couldn't have been more cordial. You know what I'm saying? Like, and again, he's a guy who actually could sort of justify, like he's at a level of fame where again, he's on another stratosphere. He's in the Prince world, right? Like of fame, the Brad Pitt, the Tom Cruise world of fame, right? Like so famous that you can't go outside. Right. Um, so this is not that level of fame, but I think how pe- this is how you can always tell too how people respond to their fame, which I think is a great indicator. So, for people that are listening to this, I, I don't know. Most people probably know who the Indigo Girls are. I think that that Georgians probably are more familiar, you know, with them being from here and you know that whole deal. But um, if you don't know, there's this there's this group of two women that they they sort of they do different stuff, but they were rooted in acoustic guitar and these amazing harmonies, and they're really good songwriters. And um, anyway, the, in the 90s. yeah, and the gist of it is that um they were very influential in my decision to start playing the guitar. Um, you know, I think when I was coming up when I, t- my teenage years, which was the early, or my college years, which were the early nineties, um, you know, that was the kind of stuff, like the kind of music people would often listen to in college, right? It's that kind of folky Americana, you know, kind of stuff. Um, 
So I got turned on to them and I was like, oh my God, I want to know how to do that. Right. And so that's how I started playing the guitar. Right. Like they were a big influence. So the other thing, and this is another big Sean life thing is, is you never know, like take every experience with, give every experience it's due regard. Like don't over inflate it, but don't under inflate it either because you never know how experience you're going to, you know, sort of affect or alter the course of your life. Um, if you think about it, right. Like me being exposed to the Indigo girls was the reason that I decided to start playing guitar because I decided to start playing guitar. I go out on the road and play shows and meet a lot of people in the Atlanta radio community and that sort of thing. And then later on through one of those connections, I get introduced to the woman that's now my wife. Right. So that was like the first domino, right. That gets me to where I am today. Right. Like married to an amazing woman, have an amazing life. Um, If that doesn't happen, the, the Sean timeline would be radically different. You know, it would be radically different. Everyone in my life would disappear. Like if you're a Marvel Universe fan, the alternate timeline would be radically different. So when Holly was doing the morning show at Dave FM and Mara Davis, who's another was a radio personality here in Atlanta, um, did middays. Holly called me one day or no, maybe she came home and she said, hey, um, Emily Sayers, who's one of the Indigo girls, is going to be in studio tomorrow doing the lunch hour with Mara. So like Mara would have like recording artists come in and they would like pick songs and place like take over the radio station kind of thing. Do you want to come up to the radio station? And I'm like, fuck, yeah, I do. Right. Like, are you like, are you kidding? Like, of course I do. So I went up there, I got up there a little early. If you've never been in a, in a, well, they're all different, but in this, in the particular studio where the, the DJ does their thing at Dave FM, there was like the big desk and the board and all the mics and stuff. And then over in the corner, there was this couch. And so I just parked myself on the couch. You're kind of out of the way. You're kind of out, you know, off the side and there's always people floating around in these scenarios. So usually when artists come in, they're focused on the DJ. They're not paying attention to what's going around them. So Emily gets there. Everybody sort of says hello. They do their talk. They do the top of the hour intro. They talk about how Emily's going to take over. They play a song. They chat. They play a song. Well, then we get into a chunk where there's going to be like three songs in a row, right? With no stops, right? So you've got basically what, 13, 15 minutes, something like that. Right. And I knew we were going to have a minute where we it wasn't going to be like three minutes, four minutes, and then they're going to jump back into talking. So I came over to Emily and I said, look. And, and I was fanboying, you know what I mean? Like it was a, cause I had thought about this. I'm just like, you don't know me, but what you do impacted my life, right? Like it, 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 it set off a chain reaction that landed me like here, right? In this exact spot today. <laughs> and I was, I started telling her the story about how I did. And I went to the, you know, to this local guitar shop and bought a used Fender acoustic guitar for 110 bucks and taught myself to play. And I'm kind of starting to, I'm free. I know I'm freaking out. And I just decide to just let it go. Cause normally I don't freak out at all in that scenario. Cause I've been around famous people. I don't care that they're famous, but she was different, right? She was important to me in a different way. And it's funny. So Mara realizes I'm freaking out. And I thought about this because you mentioned the scenario other when your brother was like, look, don't act like he's Bono. Just act like he's Paul. Right. right. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so, um, Mara interrupts me and goes, okay, Sean, right? Cause I'm on this rambling arcing story about, you know, how 
this person's music has affected my life. And I shit you not, Emily turns to Mara and goes, Mara, hang on a second. This is important. No shit. And she turns back to me and she goes, finish telling me what you want to tell me. No shit. And I'm like, if I couldn't have liked you more, right? But again, like talk about someone like, I'm sure that's happened to her an infinite amount of times. You know what right. I mean? That someone has come up wanting to talk about how what they did is important to them, right? And she recognized the moment and not only recognized the moment, but gave me the opportunity to do what I wanted to do. Just recognizing it's another human being where this was an event that meant something to me. And if we could all be a little bit more like that. Yeah. Right. Like that would, and, and when she could have easily just said, yeah, thanks, whatever. And then gone back to what she was doing. And like, I remember that moment very vividly and I'll always remember it. And I try to remember again, and not that I have people coming up to me, talking to me about, but to me, it's just recognize the moment you're in and what it means to the other person as well. And try to be sensitive, right. To, to that person, yeah. that person's moment. Right? No, I mean, I, yeah, that, 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 like I'm in awe of that story. Cause that's pretty dope. And I know Mara, Mara's a super nice person. And I could see exactly what, you know, She's just trying to avoid what she's thinking is she's saving her. And then it's like, no, 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 let him have his moment. And it, that's very cool. And Mara's now, and Mara's at work. Like Mara's not a Mara's right. an awesome person. This is not a shot at Mara. Like Mara's working. No, 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 and, no, no. You know, Mara's they're doing she's her doing job. Show. Yeah. She's doing her show and she's like, I've got to protect protect my guests. I also want Sean to have his moment. And it's that balance. And you know, when we're caught in that, your balance is I got to protect the guest a little bit more than the person. Um, now, a flip of that guy I absolutely hate. Hope he never gets in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I think he's one of the worst human beings on the planet. I don't care. Pete Rose. Oh, yeah. He's a terrible, terrible person. H horrible human being. Yeah. Um, terrible. And and I say that is like, you got to respect what he did. No, I, no doubt about it. All that. Um, I was walking in the tunnels between Oakland Coliseum, uh, Oakland Stadium and Oakland Coliseum, right? They're connected, or at least they, they were at that time. Um, and there was, I guess, a card show going on at the Coliseum. I mean, at the uh, arena. After we had just played a game before the A's in the Coliseum. And because of the way that place is built, we were using some of the locker rooms in the Coliseum, so we were going back. Um, and he is waiting as uh to go back into the signing and they've got him in like just the you know the back hallways nobody's around him just kind of give him in his peace for a second and as we're walking by he sees phil Nikra, who is our coach and our manager um and joe and he starts yelling at him and the two of them and i've known phil and joe are two of the nicest human beings i've ever had the pleasure of working with and being around um and uh he starts busting his chops and it's like, okay, all right. You know, we're in the same industry and we know each other. Sure. Bust our chops. He bust his chops. Who cares? The thing that killed me is he said it loud enough. So all the women on the team could hear it. Um, and the comment was something to the effect of, so this is what it's called. Uh, come to, you can't get a job in real baseball. So you got to travel with fucking women. Jesus and, Christ. And I'm just like, you're a, like, there's one thing to say that, 
fine. That's that's how you feel. You get your opinion. But to say it in a volume to make sure all the women that probably looked up to you on some level because they're baseball fans, and then to say it to another guy who's going to get in the Hall of Fame, you're a dick. Yeah. And I remember walking through and saying that, and the guy, Patrick, uh, who's our equipment manager, he was like, remind me later when we're drinking beers. I got another one. And we're drinking beers later, and I'm like, what is it? Do I want to hear this? He's just like, it goes in line where who Pete is. He's like, when I was 10 years old, uh, and I was like the assistant, 10 or 13 years old, and he was the assistant clubhouse manager, like a rug rat running around, just picking up towels kind of thing. Pete was shaving, and he walked up to him while he was shaving to get an autograph. He ripped him a new asshole to the point where when we saw Pete, he's like, I can't even go near him. I, I'd, be, I'd be too nervous. I'm like, oh, because it's Pete Rose? He's like, no, I'm scared of him. I mean, that's the indelible impact he made on the guy. And I'm like, you're a dick. You had everything in life. You could have been nice to people. And he's, uh, um, I, I'm so happy you had that experience. Now, again, the flip of that is Joe and Phil introduced me to my, my sports idols. We were in Seattle, and I'm sitting next to Joe, and Joe's just kind of, I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe, you know, Daryl Strawberry and the way couldn't are here. He's like, seriously? Hey, straw. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. The next yeah. thing you know, Kobe Grove sitting on my left, who I had a poster up in my room, is sitting on my right, and then they call over Dwight Gooden. And, you know, great conversation. I mean, just nothing but fun. And I'm just like, thanks, Joe. He's just like, they're human beings, Mike. Yeah, they're just true. like me. And you know me. I'm like, thanks, thanks, man. That, that was very, you know, and um, yeah. So anyway. Incidentally. I don't know how we got down this rabbit hole. No, these are good. Incidentally, um, Strawberry's um, son, Jordan, um, was a point guard at Mercer. Did you know that? Did you really? Yeah. No, so I, I met him a couple of times. Yeah. He played, I guess he just graduated two or three years ago. Um, but he was at a lot of the games. Um, I don't know how from California, his son, there's a story there about how he landed it in Georgia, you know what I mean? For college to play basketball. But, um, but yeah, he Strawberry seemed like supposedly lives now in Florida and like, he's a reform, you know, he's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and very religious yes, um, and now puts out inspirational things. And if people hit him up over his Instagram or Twitter account, he'll, he'll engage them and kind of like try and be positive influences on them, which is a great kind of full circle for that human being on the planet. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, he, so. he was very, very nice. Like any times that I, you know, was exposed to him, he was, um, but yeah, people are just, but I, you know, I, I just, I challenge people that, aren't around fame. I mean, and we've just seen the repercussions of, I mean, fame. I mean, I don't, again, I'm not going to get into it, but I think a lot of that is the reason why we have the president we have now. I mean, because it's not about necessarily for a lot of people. I don't think it was about making a good decision politically. It was about, Oh, that guy's on TV. You know what I mean? Like, or whatever. And that's where I think the shit gets dangerous. But, um, and I would say that regardless of political persuasion, I just think that, you, you know, it, that to a degree, like with the media and stuff, like politics in general has become a bit of a popularity contest. Um, I uh, completely agree. And and part of me always, uh, you know, I go back to my father. I always ask my dad, I'm like, is the world as screwed up as it is? He's like, it's always been screwed up. Yeah, exactly. He's like, it's always, things have definitely changed. Don't get me wrong. He's like, but it's always been screwed up. I'm like, what do you mean? He's just like, 
Hitler was marching through Europe when I was a child. Oh, right. I'm like, okay, good point. All right, point taken. Well, and here's, and that's why I tell, you know, one of my theories as well is that people talk about how the world is so bad right now. And my position is that I don't think the world's worse. I think no matter what universe, you know, or timeline you live in, there are, um, there are things going on at that timeline. For example, like you mentioned World War II, like, you know, Vietnam, like there's, there's crazy stuff going on all the time. Um, you know, in the sixties, the civil rights movement, you know what I mean? Like whatever, like pick yep. something. But, um, I think the, va- the difference now to me is when we were kids, you had three networks on your big cabinet television, you know what I mean? That yeah. was in, in your house. Yep. You you had like local news and then you had one hour of national news, um, which is really 40 minutes, right? With commercials. Uh-huh. Um, and that's all you got, right? Like informationally. So, you know, I, I try to encourage people like the world's not falling apart. You just know a shitload more than your parents did. And that has its own set of challenges. But for example, if there was a school shooting in Bakersfield, California in 1975, right? And eight kids got gunned down or whatever, you would have no idea, right? Like it's not going to show up on the Atlanta local news broadcast. Um, it, right. it probably in the height of Vietnam, it's not going to show up on the national news, right? Like now though, it's completely different, right? Like everything that happens, you know, about everything, right? Like it doesn't matter what it is you can get to it somehow. So, you know, I, my thing is to like, just don't feel like the world is collapsing. Just remember that we're in an age where we have this thing called the internet that has totally changed access, right? Like the rule, like you just have access to it all. And all the time and yeah, constantly. And that's a new paradigm, right? Like that's a, that's a thing that everyone else didn't have. So do I believe that the world is crazier? Absolutely not. Um, do I believe we know about crazy shit that we didn't know about before? 100. Right? Yeah. 100. You know about stuff yeah. that our parents never would have known about. A protest in Virginia, a school shooting in you know, California, a, a state law being passed to legalize <laughs> marijuana. Y- you know what I mean? Or whatever. Like, right. That wouldn't have, I mean, maybe that's big enough back then to where it comes up, but that's probably a back page kind of story. You know what I mean? Like if it even shows up on any sort of national, but just, we just got access to way, way more data, you know? But, um, yeah. But to your point, I think that's also the reason why, again, it's important to start taking advantage of these opportunities to engage with people. And again, don't just get trapped in the box. And I'm a tech guy, right? Like that's the world I live in. Right. So, I mean, I understand how important technology is and, you know, like Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. Um, you have to understand how to leverage that tech, like leverage technology properly. But, and I'll be honest, I think, uh, so I don't know if this is politically correct or not. I think this whole coronavirus is Mother Nature's way of going, hey, you're not going to have an average age of 100 on this planet. It's not going to happen. Um, you you are going to respect each other. You are going to engage with each other. You all, it's almost like it really is our mom going, you all need a timeout. 
And if you don't take it, I will force you to have a timeout. And you need to reconnect again. And I know that's all whatever and hippy-dippy stuff, but I really do believe that there's a – that is at play. Um, and the thing that I am most – I hate the time period we're in. It is very difficult for all of us. And it's going to get a little bit worse. I think we all know that. I think the positives, though, are um, there's no movies coming out. There's no real new television. Uh, as much as this sounds like it's a problem, it's forcing us to read more. It's forcing us to do puzzles again. It's forcing us to connect with families over Zoom. I mean, I have never had a family call where everybody on the family, even my father and my uncle, were on it. Um, I have never spent every Friday over the, uh, over the last few years with my college friends in a Zoom uh, social hour. Um, these are the things that, yes, we can look at the negatives. There are people dying. There are people getting sick. But if we're rational human beings, we can overcome that. And then we should take out of it the fact that we're connecting again. We really, really are. Um, and the thing that I look at it is, is like that's the in, two industries I really chose. Um, I, I, by the way, I diversified very well, right? <laughs> neither of my businesses both need attendance and people to come out to live things. But that's what I got into. It's like, how do I connect with human beings or help people connect and get together? Um, and that's what's happening. And that to me is very, very the positive of a negative. Um, and that's what I keep telling myself is that every positive has a negative and every negative has a positive. Go find it. Um, you just got to go find it. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah. been that that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's perfect. And this is, there's a phrase that I personally hate. Um, and I heard it a lot coming off of my being sick, you know what I mean? And being in the hospital for a long yeah. time. Um, yep. Is it's and it almost makes my it literally makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up in a bad way, even when I'm about to say it, not only when I hear it, but everything happens for a reason. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it fucking doesn't. Right? <laughs> like that's cr like, and here's why. Like, that to me implies that there is some body and this is not intended to be have religious connotations right but there is some asshole that is pulling the strings and inflicting suffering and on some people good things on the other for there to be some other outcome right if that's true i don't know if i want to be here right like that to me is just jacked now here's what i think is better find the reason in everything that's different. That's what I think. Like everything happens for a reason. Fuck that. But everything what? that happens, look for the reason in it. Right. And then use that to propel yourself forward. Right. Like yeah. I got sick. Right. What's the, let me find the reason there. All right. What's different? How's my perspective change? What should I be focused on? Did I spend all these years looking at a lot of the wrong things? Absolutely. I did because I almost died. Right. And it's like, okay, maybe I should put less stock in shit that doesn't matter so much and more stock in shit that matters a lot. Right. And, and not be so caught up in it, but like everything happens for a reason, no, man, come on. That's to me, that's lazy. Right. I, like, I, and I think, and I think it is a lazy thing, but it's a, it's a thing to kind of put that warm blanket on you. Why does a warm blanket feel good? I have no clue, but we need it sometimes. Right. 
And it's, it's that comment that makes it easier to deal with what the crazy. Because look, it is crazy out there right now. But it always is crazy. The difference between this crazy is we're all experiencing it together at the same time. And that very rarely happens on this planet anymore. Um, and that, that people need that warm blanket. And I get it. Look, when you're the guy who goes through what you go through, you look and go, what is the fucking reason this happened then? If everything happens for a reason, what is it? Um, and it is not just leaving it up to, oh, it just happens for a reason. It's, I like, I like that better. It's finding the reason or using it to, to, to have a reason kind of thing. Um, you know, what I was saying, look, I'm going through a divorce. Uh, it's been tough. It's been really, really tough. I do love my wife. She thinks I don't, and I get it. Um, and it's, my, my thing is, it has been this thing of, um, not that everything happens for a reason. It's just like, find, find something in it. Find something that, that is happening and, and, and grow from it and learn. Um, I have come to realize that I am very uh, bullheaded. I will put my head down and run through a wall if I think that's what the moment calls for and I'll deal with the consequences later. I think this divorce, I think everything has made me kind of slow down and go, okay, I need to analyze it more. Um, so when somebody goes, you know, it happens for a reason. Okay, I'm finding my reason is really what you're saying is like, find the reason. It just doesn't randomly happen. Find the reason it happened to you and why. Like, Sean, we've known each other a long time. We're connecting because of you going in the hospital, because you've come out and you found your reason. And we're doing this and talking now because of that. Um, that is a reason, right? That, that's the reason. It all happens for a reason. There's a different way of saying it. That, that's it. You found it. Um, I got laid off uh, 10 years ago. I was, I remember walking out of my office and I'm not a crier. I'm not, man, this overwhelming, oh my God, my life is over. And how do I go tell my wife? Her response was like, let's make something happen out of it. Go, go contract. You're going to be okay. And what happened? Well, that forced me to start striking in essence. And we've been around 10 years and there are good times and bad times, but I can't see myself doing anything other than this right now. Right. That was my reason to go through that. Um, I think that's it. Right. It's, it's finding the reason is a better way of saying it. you're right, but it is the same thing. It's just like everything happens for a reason. What is the reason? It's on you. You know what? It's an incomplete statement. Everything happens to, for a reason. Go find your reason. That's what it should be. Yeah, and the, the um, differentiator for me is it is the same thing, but I think in one way you're ceding a ton of control. And looking at it the other way, you're actually grasping control. And I understand that some people don't want control because they it's, it's to your point, warm blanket. It's more comfortable than to go, well, everything happens for a reason and it's not really my fault or it's not really my doing or it's not really my place. It's just this, this grand plan or this grand thing. And I'm just the opposite. Like to me, it's like, no, when you say everything happens for a reason, you're acting like that's out of your hands. Find the reason in everything is where you need to, you go grab it by the throat and go, I'm going to now right? Take control, right? Cause that's, that's the key thing, right? Is like, is this going to be, am I just going to sit back and let it all happen? Or am I going to go make something happen? Right? right. 
And that's where it gets different. That's where you, and, the mindset's got to be. No, no. Like I'm not just a I'm not just a puppet in the show, <laughs> right? Right. People, people you got to remember though. Um, people are scared of risk. People are scared of failing. We we are brought up in a society that don't fail. Don't be a failure. Well, hang on. Failure. Uh, I come from the land of improv. Um, I remember the old artistic director at Whole World would say, uh, jump into the, the abyss. I was like, what the fuck does jump into the abyss mean? <laughs> the hell is that shit? It's a failure. Take, take that, it's that Indiana Jones moment in um, um, uh, The Last Crusade where he's walking across and he's just like, take the, the leap of faith. Yeah. And he puts his foot out, and he's like, oh, my God, he's going to – and there's a – looks like the floor. That's why you couldn't see it. Um, so one of my favorite scenes of all time is my biggest failure. Favorite scene. Um, I, I did a scene in our up-left set at Whole World with a woman by the name who was – listen, she's the most talented person to come out of improv in Atlanta, the most successful I did my worst scene with. That shows you how shitty I was. Um, <laughs> her name is Sarah Baker. She's on the Comiskey Project. She's done a ton of stuff. She oh, yeah, I remember Sarah. Yeah. Sarah is hilarious. Great. One yeah. of the sweetest, nicest, kindest human beings on the planet. Um, really always would go blue, you know, telling a dirty joke, but really would get upset if you didn't, if she thought you were using it as a scapegoat and the easy way out, right? Um, we did this scene. And it's called Script in Hand. She was off book. She was on book, which means she has to read from a character that's chosen. She has to read the whole thing verbatim. And then the other person's free-flowing. And it's a funny improv scene. It's almost a fail scene because there's always a funny line coming out of a book that makes no sense. Man, three and a half minutes. I didn't even get a golf clap. And I remember she, she kind of just was like, eh, shrugged her shoulders and just kind of walked backstage. I got backstage and my boys were all in the show. And it, again, my buddy RT just walked up to me and says, ah! <laughs> 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 ah! it wasn't that funny. He goes, I know it wasn't. It was horrible. Oh, that had to be painful. And I remember like, dude, what is the matter with you? Why are you being such an asshole? He goes, King, you're going to learn more from that scene. And you have now, you, you're going to get more out of that than anything else. And what I got out of it was, it's okay to stand in front of an audience for three and a half minutes and hear nothing but silence. I got through it. It was a scary thing before that. Well, now I've gone through it. It's just like, fuck it. That happened for a reason, but I found the reason because of my friends and it, it, it became, it made me fearless. And that fearless means that I can go up and I don't care if I fail. And because of that, I'm a lot freer and everything's going to be okay. And then it just becomes this whole thing of you accept it. Um, and then it goes to just being able to kind of really think of not caring of failing. And, and I go back to uh, my wife and I, I did an event for Red Bull. Um, and we uh, were at this VIP event and I hosted it because the next day I was one of the hosts for um, Flutog. And Flutog is day of flight. People bought, build their own aircrafts and they try it without an engine and try and run it off a pier, uh, a, uh, a dock that is 30 feet long, 20 feet high over water and see how long you can fly. 
And we were walking across the bridge in Tampa and my wife just stopped. She's like, how do you do it? I'm like, what do you mean? How do you stand in front of 120,000 people and not, and talk to them and not be nervous? And I was like, cause I don't think about it. And now I'm fucking thinking about it. And now I'm thinking of a failure of thinking about it. Uh, like, why would you put that thought in my head? And that failure creeped into my head. And when we went live on air, my right hand holding the mic was so uncontrollably shaking and I felt it that I had to hold it with both. And I remember in the middle of this bit, I'm talking to, you know, the other anchors and I'm thinking to myself, I was like, what am I scared about? That I screw up? Who cares? And we went to the cut and when we came back, I was a totally different person because I realized that that's what stops people. It's it, what stops people in their tracks. What they need is that it's that failure. It's, it's, it's what we have now. It's like, what do I do? I might fail. It's like, fuck it, go fail. You're doing something. Now is the time to go out in the world and fucking fail miserably. Well, what's, The real failure is if you don't learn anything in that failure. Well, what's, it, tru- it, it, what's truly silly is everyone fails, right? Like Everybody. That's like the thing. It's like you're scared of something that literally it's not like you're alone, right? Like in in the world of, you know, of failing, right? Like we all fail. And to your point, I was really, I consider myself very lucky because my failure moment, um, happened the first time I ever did anything. So here's a funny quick story for you. So what I mentioned earlier about starting to play the guitar or whatever, and I kind of played, I played for a while and I taught my, I was self-taught, right? So I didn't, I have no musical background, no musical family. I just taught myself how to play. So after about a year of effectively teaching myself how to play at the, at the college I went to, there was a, um, like they did an open mic, you know, it was in like the student center. Everybody's been to an open mic, you know, an open mic is, and you got to do, you got to do one to three songs. And I said, well, I think at that point I maybe only knew one song all the way through. Um, ironically it was an Indigo girl song, but, um, uh, I'm like, I'm going to do this one song. So I had now, I had now after about a year, I had upgraded to a nicer guitar, right? So I had, a guitar that had electronics in it. You could plug it in. So everybody was there for the open mic. There were a few performers and my guitar was sitting up there. And the guy that played ahead of me had a problem with his guitar. And he said, can I play your guitar? And I was like, sure. Right. Like help a brother out, you know, <laughs> fellow musician. Um, even yep. though it was hilarious cause I was not a musician at all. Um, so, and this was like dick move of the century in retrospect, but at the time I didn't, but the song you wanted to play had this really weird alternate tuning, right? So for those of you that don't know instruments, you know, all the guitar strings are tuned to a different note. There's a standard tune. That's why when you put your a tuning, so that when you put your hands in certain positions, it makes the sounds you want. Well, you can change those and, you know, it changes what the guitar, but you can do different things, right? So he tunes my guitar all wacky, right? Like into this wacky tuning, plays his song and then doesn't retune my guitar to standard. Oh. So I go up there and I'm I don't even know if I could tune it on the spot. You know what I mean? Like at that point, like I don't even know if I had the talent or ability to, you know, just by ear tune it up to standard, which I can clearly do now. So I just and I'm nervous as shit, right? It's the first time I'm gonna play music in front of everyone. Right. Like in front of a bunch of people with a microphone and you know what I mean? Like it was nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. I start to play and just, it might as well have been fight cats fighting. Like, because every, 
every position, every chord I try to play with my hands is making this terrible sound because the tuning on the guitar is not right. And I just locked up. Like I, I didn't, I should, in retrospect, it's like, just stop and go, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. This is not tuned right from the last guy. Let me fix it. It takes two minutes and you're off and running. You know what I mean? But I right. didn't, dude. I just played. I kept going. I just did what I knew. And I sang the song and played the song with the guitar tuned incorrectly. It was a shit show, right? Like it was awful. And everybody just looked at me when I finished and like two people did like the. Yep. Yep. Golf clap it. Like the slow. And it wasn't the like, that was good clap. It was the like, oh, poor thing. I'm clap. So sorry. Yeah. And so. Again, mortified, but here's what I learned, and maybe that was a formative thing at 19 years old. Um, I left, and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was like, wait a second. Am I physically hurt? No. Um, did anything really happen? No. Like, I don't have a bloody nose. You know, I'm not. Like, it was a thing, but it wasn't that bad. Right. So it was sort of like, it was the most epic fail of all time. And it wasn't that bad. Right. And if like, if that's the worst, if the worst is not that bad, what's there to be worried about? And so, and now and it's a great story. You know, like I think that story is hilarious. You know, at the right, time, yeah. at the time it wasn't funny at all. Right. Uh, yeah. B but now it's like, and it didn't take long for it to be that funny. You know, I mean, again, with fraternity brothers, it took about 30 seconds for somebody to go in on me about it. <laughs> right. Like on the walk back to the dorm, I think my, my roommate was like, well, that was shit. And I'm like, thanks man. I appreciate that very much. Um, um, so on that, it made me think of this. Uh, I played guitar. I took guitar lessons as a kid and my mom always thought I was a lot better than I was. They always do. So she, yeah, she volunteered me to help out in the church choir. And I don't know why I didn't go to a rehearsal or anything. Just showed up. I faked playing the guitar in front of my congregation, brought the guitar home, put it down, never picked it up again. I own two guitars currently. Still could not play a fucking note. Um, and every time I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'm 48. At what point am I getting to it 38 years later? But it, I... I, because I was a kid and it was so traumatic and I didn't want to talk to everybody about it. I just, I was, I was scared of it totally. And I've always been enamored by anybody who can play the guitar. Um, uh, it was just one of those things. And I think that was what kind of made me fall into comedy in that is that, uh, I'll be honest, comedy scared me when I first saw improv. Live improv scared the bejesus out of me. I would watch shows on a Sunday night of the secondary cast and my stomach would drop. Um, and then they offered classes and somebody's like, you should do that. I'm like, are you fucking stupid? Why would I do that? Um, what I've come to realize is I run into the, I can't do it except guitar playing. Um, it's like, okay, I can't do it. What's the worst thing that can happen? I can't do it. So let's go try and see what I can't do. Um, and it gives you that freedom of, okay. Uh, because anytime you're trying to do something perfectly until you are, the master at it, it's not going to go that way. And even when you are the master, the imperfect becomes the perfect. 
Um, it's 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 one of those things. Um, but yeah, epic failures to me ruin a dream. But if you're realistic about it, it can inspire a dream. If yeah, that makes sense, yeah. it, it never gets worse than that. <laughs> and I also just don't know why. You know, I don't understand. Like somebody needs to explain to me why perfection became the why per, when perfection became the standard. You know what I'm yeah, saying? I, like, like it's okay. Like, I mean, again, we should all like, again, strive to be there, but in very few cases is perfect attainable, right? Like business gurus will tell you, right? Set attainable goals. Well, being perfect is generally not an attainable goal. I mean, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't mean that you can't make an attempt, but like understand what success looks like. And don't set a standard for your, you know, yourself. I mean, but just to give you like, not to blow you up or anything, but you know, cause I think a lot of times people don't, they just, they know they're cause a lot of times when people ask me about guitar, like I don't, and I was telling somebody this, this the other day and I'm not a great guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Hey, like, I think you are. <laughs> am I better than like, if you put me in a, in a grocery store full of people, of course, if you put me in a room full of, um, like my musician friends, I'm like the special ed kid. Right. And, but that's, but that's okay. Right. Like, because I'm not, I don't do it for a living anymore. I don't do, you know what I mean? I don't make money doing it really. I just, you know what I mean? It's just something for me yeah. and that's okay. Um, but to your point, like you started more to, I mean, two specific things. I'm sure there are other things, but like, you started two somethings from nothing, right? You started your marketing business. You started a theater literally from nothing. There was air, right? You decided yeah. you were going to do something and now these things exist. And not only do they exist, but they're not only important to you, but they're now also important to other people, right? Whether it's for income or experience or whatever, right? And that is not unlike not every, not everyone can do that. Right. And you should never begrudge yourself a little bit of pride in the things that you do. So again, like my thing, like I'm not an unbelievable guitar player, but I also recognize that it's not something that everyone can do. Right. So, you know, I, I'm, 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 I think it's cool. I don't remember what it's like to not be able to do it. That's the other thing too. Like if you hand me a guitar, I just, I know what to do with it. You know what I mean? Right. And that's like, but like if you handed me a clarinet, no idea. <laughs> right. But I don't think about it because now it's just in my, it's in my CPU. You know what I'm saying? It's in my, right. and, and so you know, recognize it's okay to give yourself some credit every once in a while is what, is what I'm driving at. Right. As well. Like it's okay to say, Hey, you know what? There aren't a lot of people in the world that start a business, let alone multiple businesses. Right. And they be around for years and years and years. Right. It's okay for me to feel good about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it look, it, it's, Somebody, so the, so at some point, uh, our artistic director at the theater was just like, yeah, just get on Slack 
I'm like, okay, well, what? So like, King, you don't have to get on Slack. Slack's a communication, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I'll get on it. How many people are on our Slack? He's like, oh, we have about 100, 110 people. I'm like, oh, for what? <laughs> like, that's the theater company. I'm like, 100 to 110 people? <laughs> what? There were 13 of us just yesterday. <laughs> right, exactly. And right. it's just like this humbling thing. And it's funny because there's this, okay, so it goes back to this whole thing that we've been talking about. And it's on multiple levels. It's a humbling thing. And then you walk in the theater and there's a million people that want to talk to you, it feels like, because you're the owner. Hey, I need, I need, it's like, oh, uh, yeah. When it was 13, it was just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> um, and it is this humbling thing because then I go down and watch shows. And I sit in the back row and I'm not the guy on stage. I'm not the guy I'm seeing. I'm not anything. And I'm like, wow, I did not see this coming. Um, I am, and, and it motivates us. My, my business partner and I are going, how do we keep the doors open? How do we keep doing these things? Um, because it's not just us anymore. It's not just a, a me thing. Um, and then you also know that, I, look, I, I appreciate the compliment. I also know that it wasn't me. It was a collective group of 13 people that helped me do it. Um, with uh, striking, it was being lucky and being good. And one of those things I've kind of taken out of all of it is that when given the opportunity, don't get me wrong, I can be a tough son of a bitch. I can be head down, strong and all that. But when given the opportunity, really, we should just try and do the right thing. Like if we do the right thing, I always feel like it'll pay off. And, and I don't mean like I'm only doing it because it's going to pay off and it's going to benefit me. But it's just like, I just feel like every time I've done something right, it really has helped me out long term. Um, guys I worked with years ago that I didn't irritate or blow up the bridge have come back to kind of be positives. Um, people that, people like, you should blow that bridge up, have imploded on themselves and made me look like I'm a kinder person by not doing it. It's just a, find the kindness out there. Uh, and it's paid off. Um, striking was started because I got laid off. And I remember a friend of mine calling me up and I was contracting out with people. Uh, a friend of mine at Coke was like, Hey, I got contract work for you here. Go talk to them. I was like, why are you being so nice? Cause you've always been nice to me. It's like, but I was okay. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. and some of our biggest clients, honest to God, some of our biggest clients over the last 10 years have been people that we have helped out just, because um one of them is a client of ours and she uh when she got laid off and had her kind of divorce from her company that she was with she was part owner in a company um i was one of five people that called her i didn't know that i just called her because i saw it online and i was like hey are you okay let's go grab lunch nothing other than i hope you're okay when she got her next job she had a hundred people reach out to her right and I was just like, I'm sorry. She's like, nah, it just shows you a lot. And I'm like, I wasn't doing it to, like, please. She's like, I know why you were doing it. And my other client, uh, Kaiser Permanente, my, my client there, I've known him for 20 years. He's helped me when I was down and out. When he lost his job, I'm like, look, I got grunt work, but it'll bring money coming in. Well, he never forgot me when he made his way back up the ladder. Um, it's that kind of thing. Um, I, you know. I just, I, I yeah, because it's not, and I appreciate people saying I started it. There's no standalone. Like there's, it, it's a village on everything. They, I've had tons of people Pun intended. work for, yeah, I, I, I've had tons of people work for me at striking 
without every single one of them, I wouldn't be able to talk to you today. Um, and on some level, they influenced or educated me or I did the same for them. And that's just the goal. Um, I would love to be rich and famous, uh, more rich than famous now as I get older. <laughs> um, and I, if that's not my plot in life, cool. Then I'm going to earmark my plot. is I'm going to try and do the right thing when it counts to doing the right thing. Um, not when it's easy. Uh, and, you know, we, we've danced around politics and stuff and we don't need to get into it. I am a Republican. I'm a conservative. I have a very liberal life. Uh, I question a couple of the decisions I've made uh, politically over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I think that everybody, not a, a majority of people can agree on right now is that I didn't run for president. And unfortunately, whoever's the president has to be the most adult person in the room. And you have to take ownership and you have to stand up. And that's what true leaders do. I'm not, I'm not going to get into them. I'm not going to say anything other than true leaders stand up and get counted for. And that is the one thing I, I've, I've been raised by my parents and the ecosystem that created me. Uh, that when it's all hitting the fan, I don't go, well, he did. It's just like, yep, that's on me. So let's fix that. Can you help me fix my fuck up? Um, and I feel people are very much, when you own something like that, and you don't blame people, people are more inspired to help. Instead of, I blame somebody else, you got to fix it. It's like, fuck off, asshole. I don't want to fix it now. But it's like, I fucked up. I need help. I'm asking for it. People want to help. People yeah. want to do good. You know what I mean? I well, don't know how I got down that rabbit hole. No, <laughs> no. But it's all, yeah, but it, but to your point, like, again, not to get, not specifically get into it, but there's a point where it's about account like accountability and that's up and down the line, right? Like you, you want people to be accountable to what's their part. Like, I don't know every, but, but, and this, what's funny is I think this is also universally true. Like when something bad goes down and you're the person that is being talked, like someone called you because something bad happened in their life and you have a 30 minute conversation and all that person talks to you about is, everything other than them that's the reason that it all went bad and it's like well what was your part in why it went bad you know what i mean like because here's here's and this goes back this again not to tie a bunch of strings together this is the whole everything happens for a reason versus find the reason and everything (laughs) um is and i you know my wife is an empath Right. Like one of the things I love about her is how generous she is as a human. Right. She would help everyone all the time for nothing. Yeah. And I'm the one over here grabbing her by the ears and saying no. Right. Like some knows a complete sentence sometimes. Right. Um, but you've got to focus on what you can control. Right. Because the stuff you can't control, you can't control. And it's like, if something went horribly bad and in your mind, you're going, well, I don't want things to go horribly bad again. Fine. Maybe there are all these external factors. Your boss is an asshole. Your client didn't do something. Your coworker submarined you, your whatever. You can't control any of that stuff. You got to, what, what did you do? So you can change what you did, right? Like that's, that's gotta be the driver. On that note example. So I did a, an event for Coca-Cola years ago. Uh, it was a Powerade relaunch. Um, and I learned something out of it. Uh, one, a very long story short, very real power. We had people painted like bottles in New York in uh, Union Square Park. Actually, it was a month before 9-11. Um, 
and uh, we had we had flown in these two of the world's top twenty strongest men, and that was going to be our strong thing. And they were going to race each other while pulling tractor trailers down a uh, a city street. Um, and the only thing that was left out of my control was uh, Coca-Cola was going to supply, the local distributor was going to supply trucks. It was a way of cost savings because we didn't rent trucks. We didn't have to wrap them. They already had them. It made sense on some level. Um, when they went to take off, uh, the, when they showed up in the morning, one of the first things before they got painted, they said to me, the last thing they said, they're like, look, um, the brakes need to be bled on the truck. Yeah, 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 sure. Break, bled, sure, whatever that means. Okay, got it. <laughs> and I kind of did that, right? Um, because my bigger issue was Coca-Cola showed up. One truck had Coca-Cola graphics. The other had the Powerade graphics. Well, this is not a Coca-Cola event. It's a Powerade event. So in the, in the morning, I've got to get graphics made. I've got to get them all on a truck. And we're dealing with this up until game time, right, until we go. And then we go, Stuart Scott, and that's how old it was. Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen were still partners at ESPN. And um, they're commentating it. On your mark, get set, go. The whole thing. And there's a crew, there's a news crew. One truck moves. The other truck doesn't go anyplace. My king has to go up to one of the world's strongest men and go, hey, great job. Hmm. We're going to have to bring the truck back. You're going to have to pull it again. You want to talk about a human being that was pissed? Yeah. What do you fucking mean? I got uh, You got to do it again, man. Um, and my boss is like, what happened? I'm like, I fucked up. I didn't bleed the brakes. Now, was that my fault? No. It technically was the truck drivers. And it technically was Coca-Cola's because Coca-Cola didn't get the truck there on time. And the graphics weren't there and blah, blah, blah. And there were a million people to blame. But the reality is I was the guy who was the lead on the project. So it was my fault. What is the thing I took out of that? I'm never going to rely on the client again. The client has to understand the ownership that they're taking on. And it is my job. Whereas like I've been in situations like that. And some of the people that have worked for me is like, well, he didn't do this and he didn't do this and he didn't do this and he didn't do this. Yes. But don't all four of those people work for you. So whose fault is it? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, you work for me. So it actually is my fault because I'm taking the blame for you. You take the blame for your guys. This is how it works. Right. I hate people like stand in front of me and they go, "Why? Well, what else could I have done?" It's what you just said to me. If you're saying the statement, "What else could I have done?" You're looking for me to give you solutions. Where? Why are you on my team? I'm here for guidance and and to help you when you really need it. You know what I mean? I, I cannot fucking stand people who do not take responsibility. I understand there are multiple factors that happen and we all screw up uh, and it's not always all our fault. We can move forward if you do. If you don't, we're stuck in this. You know? So, yeah. Uh, sorry to cut you off. It's just that that is a big, to me, that is a big, uh, I don't like the words can't, won't, and don't. They are roadblockers. And people who use can't, won't, and don't usually don't take blame either. I didn't do it. I, I, I'm. It was them. Accountability and getting rid of roadblockers, you can move forward in life. And that's probably why I've fallen in love with events. I mean, fallen in love with improv, which has helped me fall back in love with events. It's like improv teaches me the only way to go forward is yes and. 
right? We're sitting on a boat. No, we're not. We're on a lake. All right, asshole, you just ruined that moment. <laughs> Whereas if you just say yes and, you're moving forward. If we yes and more in life, we're, we're so much better off. But going back to everything we're saying, people like to play it safe. People like not to take blame and ownership. And the easiest way to do it is point blame other places and don't put the bucket at my doorstep. Well, I have no problem having the bucket at my doorstep. I also realize the minute I accept the door, a bucket at my doorstep, a lot more people are going to get angry. There's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is the best I can do and keep moving forward. Um, and, and that's like, that's it. I don't know. No, no, it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's funny how too, like you draw from, you know, recognizing where lessons are, you know what I mean? That's another, that's another huge part. Like you just talked about, like you basically just equated improv, you know what I mean? Like some of the rules, the air quotes, rules of improv. Right. Um, to, you know, your business life or your, other, your regular life. And that is, you know, people don't do that enough. I mean, it's funny, like not to get totally tangential, but, um, I just love improv, right? I think it's such an interesting, you know, art form so much so that it's something I've always wanted to <clears throat> try. Um, you should, and have never really just done it. I need to just, you know what I mean? I need to just buck up and like take a class or, you know, a class. How about this? I'll get you into a class. <laughs> level one if you teach me uh guitar oh fair <laughs> enough that's fine um but to your point like it's um there's there's well this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation um this is much less deep but to your point my fear of improv has always been i feel like it's so much a slave and again this is probably just bad thinking on my part to like the audience's sense of humor i see that and like, I have a weird sense of humor and it's so like, and I, and I feel like in art, like, it's sort of like if you were a, like a, an experiential musician, you know what I'm saying? Like you were like, do like, you know, like Radiohead later in life, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they've just, they've at a point now where they can do whatever they want. You know what I'm saying? They're, uh -huh. you know, they don't have to make the commercially, you know, they can do like a music with nothing but glockenspiels and harpsichords, right? They, cause they're wrecking Radiohead, like with anything's fair right. game. Um, so my concern has always been about improv because I find like a lot of things I find funny. My wife just looks at me like I've got three heads. You know what I mean? Like, and it's just like, that's not funny. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. That's hilarious. So hey. like, do you find that? How do you reconcile? the how do you reconcile <clears throat> what's funny to you versus funny to everyone else or do you just not worry so, about that so i'll give you i'll give you something i, I it's going to go to i don't worry about it but i do you, you always kind of worry about it and there are nights where like if i haven't been on stage in a while um i'm going to be slow i'm going to be sluggish i'm not going to feel on my game um and then I am kind of searching for that kind of reinforcement from the audience on some level. And then what it really ends up happening is we'll go to intermission and one of my friends will be like, Oh, trying to get them to like you. Like, <laughs> um, trying to get somebody to like you. It doesn't work. Right. It, it's, it's, it's that. Um, but what I was going to say originally is like, I was at, uh, and I'm going to make this a longer version, unfortunately, but I was at home 
for Thanksgiving last year at my brother's place. And he had a bunch of his friends over and family, uh, extended family. And somehow we got on SNL. And everybody in the room was like, it sucks. It's horrible. It hasn't been good in years. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And they're just trashing it. It's too political. It's too liberal. Fuck them. And I'm like, cool. How old are you? (laughs) I've got to make a difference. I'm like, how old are you? Um, 50. All right. No offense. Saturday Night Live is not trying to get you to like them. Right. 50 years old. They're going for somebody somewhere between 16 and 18 and as max, maybe 30 something, maybe, maybe touching 40. Um, so to say they're horrible, they're not even trying to get you to laugh. You're old. You probably like, uh, you know, uh, Adam Sandler. He's like, what's the matter with him? I'm like, nothing. He was your generation. Now, with all that said, SNL really puts on a show and they go, we're looking to make 20% of the audience laugh with everything we're doing. If we get 20% of the audience laughs, it means 40% of it probably thinks it's funny and now 40% is laughing. And if 40% of the audience is laughing at a live event, that means you're probably going to get another 20% because they're like, oh, I get that joke. Okay, all right, I see it. I see it, all right. And there might be 40 people that don't. The great ones, the Eddie Murphys, the Richard Pryors, the Chappelle's, the, you know, uh, the Bill Murray's are going to be batting an average of more than 40%, which means that they're going to get more of the audience. Um, but you can't please everybody. You're going to find your comedy voice and you're going to please those people. Um, I got, I was very blessed and I, I have recognized it in my older age. When I was at Whole World Theater, I found six other guys that had very similar sensibilities as I did. And we, and we complimented each other in aspects. I was more physical. They could do better dialects, whatever it was. As a group, when you put us together on stage, we performed at a higher level. Some of us were definitely better than others. But when you put us together, we found a bigger comedy voice and we could reach a bigger group. Um, then when I went to, when the village started, I really was a, a generation before the group that really is the core group of village theater. I had been around it a little bit longer, but somehow that ragamuffin group really appreciate each other on a whole different level. We were all a little bit older, all a little bit more professional and recognized that the Gil Rogers of the world, who's a, uh, a, runs a law firm here in town for environmental law, um, does not have the same sensibility as a Mike King who does events and wants to do fart jokes. <laughs> but when you put the two of us together and we know each other so well, and he went to Harvard and Yale and I went to Towson, we find middle ground. And we also accept that he's going to drop some things that I don't understand, but I know they're funny because of the way they're being said and what it is in the context of how it's being said. And I can play along with that. In comedy, they always say, play at your ultimate intelligence. Um, because if you play dumb and play dumb down to the audience, the audience does not respect that. And it's being truthful to who you are. Um, and some people just should not do comedy. Let's get something straight. Some <laughs> people are just not goddamn funny. Yeah, um, 100%. But I have one, we had one guy that came through the group multiple times and he always went for a racist or a joke that was very offensive. And it's just like, Oh, I see what you're doing. 
you're just getting your racism and offensiveness out through comedy and you think it's cool. No, you're not a funny person. You're an evil person is really what you are. Right. Um, and it's people finding the voice. And then people go, well, where do you know the line is? I'll tell you. Um, it's different for each person. Um, Jim Gaffigan has a different line in the sand of what he will do than Richard Pryor or uh, uh, Chappelle have. They're both funny, but it's what you what what it really represents you. Um, and one of the things that we always really prided ourselves at theater was we are not going to hold back because you think it's offensive. However, we're not going to do it just because it's offensive. And there's a difference. Um, I have been Christ on the cross being crucified many a time at the Village Theater. And people are like, that's offensive. I'm like, well, I'm Irish Catholic. I'll deal with my maker when I get there. Um, we've done Jewish jokes. We've done black jokes. Um, and if you're equal to everybody and everything's fair game, that's where I think comedy lies. And comedy is truth. We laugh at things that are 50% in, based in truth. And times like this is where we need comedy the most. We have to be honest and truthful. Um, Brad Pitt, not the funniest guy, definitely funny. Uh, I think his opening of SNL um, with Fauci was hilarious. But then we saw this truth of, I'm not a comedian, I'm an actor, and you guys are going through stuff. And that brings it all together. Uh, Carlin's seven words, all true. We say every one of those seven words. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you can dance around the words I'm not supposed to say, but I'm saying them, is what makes it good. Richard Pryor's Sunset Strip, he's talking about and setting himself on fire. And we were laughing at him. It's all true. We're talking about his family. Shit, the kid was fucking 22. That really was all his life experience. And we laughed with him. Seeing those family members, because it's based in truth, and we're just going, this is just the way I see this truth. You could totally see it different. When Trump won, people got so upset. And I was just like, I don't know what you're upset about. One, you have a TV reality star in the audience, and no matter who won, if Hillary would have won, comedy would have won. That was the best election for comedy of all time. Because either one was a babbling idiot that was going to cause problems on a different level, on different ways. Um, and you could have fun with them. It's the people that lost were the people that got caught. Well, well I'm a Democrat. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm not making fun of my president. Then you're not a, co a comedian. If you have to base your comedy in what is going on and put a line in the stand that way, I don't want any part of you. I want people that go, what's the funny in it? Uh, let's find the funny no matter who they are and what they are. Um, and that's where, I, like, when you say, if you make yourself laugh, you can make other people laugh. Because there's not just one person with that sensibility on the planet. It's finding your sensibility. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's that way. It's the same thing with any kind of art. And I hate calling comedy art, but I guess it is on some level. It's an art form. Um, you don't play the guitar the same way as somebody else, but you can enjoy the differences. Um, and that's it. It's enjoying the differences in comedy and respecting it. Um, and on that note, by the way, if you haven't seen the new Chappelle stuff, oh, yeah. you just see, you see how intelligent he is. 
Like, and this is a guy that was a crackhead, you know, as one of his biggest bits. This guy is so diverse and why we think Chappelle is so funny is that he can talk at such a high intelligent level and then also feel commonplace uh, by doing some dirty, raunchy jokes. I mean, I think one of the best things he ever did was the racist bl- uh, blind black guy. Yeah, Clay- it shows you what it is. Clayton Bigsby. It just shows you. Look, how ingenious is that bit that he can be racist? Why? He's blind. He doesn't know he's black. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the thing about Chappelle's comedy to me is, and I'm a, I am a, a purveyor of standup, right? Like, I love standup. Um, but, uh, he, there's so many layers to what he's doing. You know what I mean? And to your point, he's an incredibly intelligent guy, right? So I think that matters, right? Um, did you happen to look at, did you see any of the stuff from where he won the Mark Twain prize? I saw some of it. I haven't seen all of it, but they, yeah. They put the whole thing on Netflix if you want to watch the whole ceremony because a bunch of comedians get up there and and um, and um do bits, right? But the thing that I love about Chappelle is is like outside of the fact that he's smart, and let's be honest, I mean, he's one of the greatest stand-ups of all time, right? Like, of all time. Like, right? I put him up there with Pryor. Yeah, like he's just, he's insane. But um, it, he also feels like he's a very much like a seize the moment kind of guy, which is kind of, a, you know, we've circled around that quite a bit in this conversation. Um, and Aziz Ansari was one of the guys that presented, you know, or talked during the Mark Twain Prize thing. And one of the things is they were on tour together. And this to me, like sums up Chappelle and like, it's actually something it's comedy, but I feel like I want to live um, life this way is that they had done a bunch of shows together and Chappelle asked him if he was going out with them that night. And he's like, man, I don't know. Um, you know, we went pretty hard last night and we've got a show tomorrow. And I think maybe I'm just going to go go upstairs and crash. And Chappelle tells him he's got these, somebody had given him these mushrooms that are supposed to be awesome. And um, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I don't know, man. I think maybe. And it's like, well, he goes, here's what you got to figure out is, you know, 20 years from now when you're talking to your grandkids, do you want to say, um, hey, oh, go. And he told Ansari that he'd just gotten the mark you know, he's going out to celebrate because he just found out he's getting the Mark Twain prize. And he's like, do you want to tell your grandkids I'm the guy that Dave Chappelle told me he won the Mark Twain, tri- Mark Twain prize and he had some mushrooms he wanted to, to do and we went out and had the night of our lives? Or are you going to tell him you're the guy that went upstairs and we need to get some sleep? <laughs> <laughs> and like that, you know, again, like for me, like that feels to me like a guy that could easily be not self-aware. You know what I'm saying? Because of his level right. of ability and fame and you know, all that sort of stuff, but seems incredibly self-aware, right? Like, it's just like a, that's a very grounded human. Like, that's the argument you would make to one of your buddies. You know what I mean? If you were just like, dude, I just got this awesome new job. Let's go out and get wasted. You know what I mean? Or like, let's go, let's go to the bar and like throw down or, you know, let's go to Vegas next weekend. And you're just like, man, I don't know. I'm kind of tired. Like, that's exactly how someone would bust your balls. You know what I mean? Like, so that made me think of this one moment, and, and I don't know why. I, I mean, I kind of know why, but we did uh, uh, 2000 Atlanta had the Super Bowl, and somehow my boss knew the guy, and this is before the internet became the internet, right? But Michael Jordan, John Elway, and Wayne Gretzky had all just retired right around the same time. 
And they were business partners in a thing called MVP.com, which I think eventually was sold to Dick's Sporting Goods. And they just became Dick's Sporting Goods' online platform. Um, but to launch it, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and uh, uh, John Elway threw a MVP.com Super Bowl party, which became the biggest party in town, um, which my company was working, which I ended up being one of the lead guys working this party and putting it together, um, which meant that when we were on site, I was running around with the radio and dealing with all the issues, which one of the major issues was everybody and their brother wanted into this party. And we did it in a parking garage that was kind of converted into an event space. Um, and it was really, it was a cool party. Don't get me wrong. Um, in fact, side note to a side note to a side note. At one point, Ronnie Lott was walking in and Muhammad Ali was walking out. Yeah. Um, and Muhammad Ali sees Ronnie Lott and he puts his hands up like he's going to go rope-a-dope. And Ronnie Lott goes to put his hands up, and he's like, ah, oh, no, nah, I'm not that dumb. You'll still knock my ass out. <laughs> and I was like, I, I just saw that. That's the number awesome. one, right. The number one, and uh, SI had just come out with the number, the century's best athlete. And I'm like, that was the century's best athlete talking to a, a top 100. This is fucking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'll give you another little side note to that party. Terrell Davis shows up, and he's got 20 people in his entourage. They just walked over from the Nike party. Um, and he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm like, you are more than welcome to come in, sir. He's like, yeah, I got 20 people. I'm like, they are not. I cannot let you in with all them. And he just politely stops. He goes, you do know the guy that is uh, throwing the party. I helped him win his Super Bowls. I, I was just running back. I'm like, I do. And I greatly think he appreciates that. And that's why you can come in. Your friends cannot. We are over capacity. Um, and there was just a, this group of people out there trying to get in. And I was getting yelled at. You're going to be fucked. I'm friends with Michael. Jordan's going to be pissed. And I'm getting yelled at nonstop every time I poke my head out like that, right? So finally, I have to go up to Michael Jordan. And I'm like, Mr. Jordan, sorry to bother you. He's like, yeah, what's up, Mike? I'm like, um, there are people out front that say that they know you and that uh, it is a huge mistake and error on my part for not letting them in. Do you mind coming up and letting me know if I'm if we're in the right? He's like, yeah, sure. And he walks up and he kind of just pokes his head out. Everybody's Michael, 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 Michael. And he kind of just takes his time. He looks around and then he comes back into the lobby area. He's like, Mike, nobody out there knows me. And let's be completely honest. Everybody says they do. So don't worry about it. If one of my friends doesn't get in and they don't have my cell phone, that's not my problem anymore. <laughs> and it was just this humbling moment of like, this is the life I lead, man. It's okay. I don't mind taking this time. He wasn't a dick about it. He was just like, yeah, okay, cool. No problem. Given, um, the, given some of the stories I'm heard, I'm a little bit surprised that was Jordan's reaction. <laughs> he, he, it, he, it totally, like for me it was. That was totally my re reaction with him. Um, the other one that I always think is funny, and I'll give you this, is that uh, Barkley, I have to say it, I outright hated the man until I met him. I've never met more of a generous human being on the planet. Um, um, I've hung out with Barkley a few times. Yeah. I mean, he's just nice. He, he's, he's just a nice. He's unbelievable. He's the most unassuming and, dude ever. Like he's just like, there's nothing pretentious about him. There's not a pretentious bone in his body. No. And one of the things I like about what you see is literally what you get. 
Um, and he pulls no punches. He tell he tells it like it is. Uh, but started dating my wife. She brought me to the end. She worked at Turner at the time, and she brought me to the end of the season NBA season parties over. And I'm like, oh, man, it's really nice to turn in to throw this. And she just stopped without missing a beat. She's like, Turner does not throw this party. Charles, Charles's way of between the season ending and the playoff starting of saying, thank you for all your hard work on this show. Thank you for making the four of us look good. Uh, and it is all you guys that do the work. And he pays for the party all by himself and always has. Um, and to me, that was always just like, and my wife, attractive woman, Charles knows her. Um, I remember walking up to him and she's like, Charles, I want you to meet my boyfriend. This is Michael. Hey, white boy, you fuck <laughs> her over. I'll kill you. <laughs> Very nice meeting you. Uh-huh. I'm serious. But it is nice meeting you, man. Uh, once in a while, when I bump into him in certain places, he'd be like, hey, I'm like, Jennifer King. He's like, yeah, man, you married Briggsy. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't be nicer. But now in that total vein, we went, and this is a funny-ass story to me. We were at um, one of the Final Fours, and we were going, and every year uh, they do a party for the production, CBS, Final Four people, and Turner. Um, private, 2,000 people, and they have somebody play. Uh, here when it was in Atlanta, it was like Sting. Well, this one year, wherever we were, I think it was Dallas, it was Don Henley. Um, I get on the bus with Barkley. It's a 16, 20-passenger bus. We're all driving, getting there. And it's just random collection of people, and Barkley happens to be on the bus. And he gets up, and he's like, do you people know how happy I am we're going to be seeing the Eagles? I know y'all don't think it. Barkley's a big fan of the Eagles, and he starts getting us all to sing, like, different Eagles tunes. And we're having a blast for 20 minutes on the way there. And he's sitting down. He's like, all right, nice meeting y'all. He's like, as he's getting off the bus, he's in the front, and he stops, and he turns around and goes, listen, we just had a nice 20, 25 minutes together. I enjoyed it. But let's be realistic. You are not my friends. We do not know each other. So don't creep up on me at this fucking party acting like we're friends. Next week, y'all. Bye-bye. Oh, that sounds like, yeah, that sounds like him. Um, and again, if more people, if more people would just be a little, a little more self-aware, you know what I mean? Like that's a high level of self-awareness. It totally. Yeah, it really, really is. And that probably comes from growing up in public eye too and getting it nonstop and knowing and some people it crushes and other people know how to deal with it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, he's, and like one of my favorite things he said is about one of my favorite human beings because I worked at the Hawks. Neek is probably one of the nicest human beings on the planet as well. Mm. His big problem, honest to God, his problem in life is, he does not know how to say no to people. He will try and make anybody happy, no matter what, if it's at his expense or not. And one of the nicest things was, was Barkley saying, it's about time he got inducted to the Hall of Fame. When they both got inducted, Barkley made it all about Neek. That shows you who this guy is, man. Yeah, exactly. And again, in a world where egos are, you know, like they are in that world, like that's a pretty selfless, you know, to make an, your moment like uh, or right. to make a moment about somebody else. Um, well, and, and everybody would assume back in the day, he would never do that, but that is exactly who he is. Yeah. That's exactly. amazing. 
Well, look, dude, I want to be sensitive of your time. We've been going at it for a little while now, and like Holy I, shit. I could, um, I could talk, I could do this with you for for hours. So, what I need you to do is, um, make me a promise that you'll come back, and uh, absolutely, and uh, we'll get more into it. I feel like, um, there's a whole lot of stuff about about you that I wanted to talk about that I didn't get to, um, um, especially around all the cool stuff that you're doing with um your business now and the Corona. So. Maybe in a couple of weeks we'll have a 2.0 and uh and we'll uh we'll talk about it. But um so thanks dude. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey Sean, uh, uh there's a reason everything happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I I really do believe I I think you coming out of all this and doing the podcast is a way to connect people and you've always said it. You kind of connect people. This is just another avenue that has come out of that and showing you a new way to connect people. So I'm, I'll sit down and talk to you anytime you want. I hope we get to do it over wine or, or socially distancing at some point. And uh, I appreciate being on, man. I really have enjoyed it. Yeah. I can't believe we've been talking for two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. This is good though, man. I always tell people cause they always wonder what you're going to, you know, and I try to have people where I know this is going to happen, you know, like I know there's enough stuff, but you know, again, this is another real life thing. Like, you'd be surprised, right? Like what, what you'll find that you can discuss with people about. And when you really get into it, it just engaging with people. There's so much there. Like everyone has stories. Everyone has a story. Everyone has significance, right? Like everyone has substance. It's just, you just got to dig in a little, um, and get at it. So for everybody listening so wait, wait. I'm on that, uh, hang on on that. I'm going to leave you with this before you, uh, before you wrap up. We had Tom Clancy. I was on student government in college. And we had Tom Clancy come and speak. Um, and he, at one point, uh, was saying, he's like, look, I've been investigated by the CIA, the FBI, blah, 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 blah. And it's because of the things I've put in my books over the years. He's like, one of the things, like, I, if you take nothing from this speech, uh, you can learn something from everybody. And that's how I've written all my books. I do research, don't get me wrong. But when I'm talking to people, I listen to everything they're saying. Because no matter who you're listening to, he goes, the homeless man standing on the street getting change is somehow interacting with people in a way they're giving money to him. You can learn something from that if you really look at it. So everybody has something, uh, no matter where you are in status in life. Um, and I just wanted to share that because that, when you said that, that made me think of what Clancy said, though. Yeah, and I think we should, and it, we would all be well served to seek that out. Right. Like, so, you know, talk about, you can talk about the weather, you can talk with people about, you know, whatever you want, but, but, you know, dig a little deeper sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of value to be had from your opportunities to engage with people and we should take more, more advantage. I, I've just decided to do it in a way more formal way with this thing, but you know, this is something that can happen the next time you're, you know, hanging out with, you know, people in your neighborhood and there's some wife or husband of somebody in your hood that you don't know very well. You know what I mean? And you have an opportunity to engage with them. Like you just, you never know what you can learn, you know, and what you might yeah. find. And it's like, take, we should all be taking more advantage of that. Um, well, look, you, um, once all this stuff, you know, sort of, uh, uh, releases and as we get away from, you know, all the craziness, um, you know, Mike is, um, striking marketing, which is strikingmarketing.com. Um, also go to the village theater, um, and watch, um, those guys do their thing. I have been tons of times and I've never been disappointed. 
um, in the show. It's uh, villagecomedy.com. Uh, um, they're amazing. And I've gotten to know some of the cast guys, you know, I'll, I don't, you know, like Chris Claybo and is Claybo still doing it? Um, no, no, he's not, but he's, uh, he's still doing comedy, but he's uh, definitely taking a step back from the theater. Yeah. I mean, I, he's, you know, but there's, and now it's like, I've said him and I knew like four of their names I was going to rattle off and my brain just left. But, you know, regardless, I'm sure that people come in and out and, you know, they're all, again, I've seen lots of different cast members and the shows are always awesome. So um, I'll make sure to add um, the links to the sites in the description of the podcast so you guys can find them there. Um, and, uh, you know, reach out to Mike if you need to. You can find him in various places on the interwebs. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for spending a little time with me. And uh, we'll do it again soon. Um, hey, man, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, we'll be back again shortly. And until next time, press on. 